Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Avnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. And we are recording Contrarian's Corner for Blue Velvet. Hello, and welcome back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my buddy Julio. Julio, this has been a real fucking asshole of a week. So, <laughs> oh, you're telling me. So naturally, <laughs> naturally, we go to a, a lighthearted movie that doesn't have you, you know, reflect on yourself or question anything in general. It makes you maybe appreciate the fact that your life is nothing like a David Lynch movie. <laughs> I guess that's true. I could take away from that. Do but you think uh, McLachlan the- voted for Biden or Bernie? Uh, how do I not lose us listeners? <laughs> uh, it's like that Simpsons joke. I think he voted for Hillary Clinton. <laughs> I think he was too busy to go vote. He definitely seems like a, a lefty, though, so I'm pretty sure he voted one of the B's. <laughs> or maybe the W. You never know. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, the irony, I don't know if this is irony, of the situation is like, I postponed this episode a week because last week I was like sleep deprived and I had to get to work early. And I told Julio, I'm not in a mental state to watch a David Lynch movie. And this week's been even worse, but we needed to record <laughs> to make sure we got it out on time. But it, it worked out for the better uh, because we are here today to discuss our first David Lynch movie starring the aforementioned Kyle McClanahan, uh, as well as Laura Dern and Isabel Rosalini. Um, I saw some places had Isabel Rosalini as the top billing in this, which I thought was fascinating. I... I'm not a Rosalini expert, but she always struck me as someone who was had a career in Europe and mm-hmm. then came over to the States. So maybe that's kind of like what happened. It could be. Yeah. Blue Velvet. And introducing. And, introdu- <laughs> and introducing Dennis Hopper as Frank. <laughs> Blue Velvet, the 1986 uh, neo-noir mystery film. Just call it a David Lynch film. Even back then, they would have known what they were getting into. As I told you when we were recording this, one of the things, the the highest points of adoration I have for David Lynch is like the, I guess, four decades worth of, five maybe, of um, people debating the themes and the meanings of his movies, what kind of movies they are and shit. Like that whole neo-noir mystery film. That's the type of thing. He's never said that probably in his life in relation to the movies. He's not going to tell you. And that's part of what makes his movies uh so endlessly fascinating. Not IMDb necessarily should, good. Right. Yeah. IMDb should just have a, a Lynch tag. Yes. Just, and that's just all you use when you're listing one of his movies. I would say uh, you can call his fan base the Lynch mob, but in 2020, that's it's not even worth bothering. <laughs> the Lynch pins is oh, what perfect. you can call his fan base. He would like that. He would. It's not Blue Velvet. It might have been uh, Twin Peaks. I just remember some talk show where like, the interviewer was like, 
you once said da 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 of your work. Can you explain that? And he just goes, no. (laughs) (laughs) So September 19th of 1986, Blue Velvet was released uh, with a very modest budget of $6 million, which even in 1986 money, this movie looks pretty damn good for a $6 million budget. Oh, that's the, that's the trick. You cast attractive people. <laughs> <laughs> Instantly adds $20 million to your budget. It did, Like the closing sequence, the, the shootout and everything, it did strike me like uh, Threat Level Midnight, the shot of Toby's head blowing up, <laughs> where like all of the budget went to like, you know, the... The brisket hanging out of Dennis Hopper's head. <laughs> Jumping uh, ahead of ourselves here. Um, if this is your first time listening to The Contrarians, we do appreciate you guys tuning in. And to explain exactly what we do here, we like to say we rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. Find a movie that is highly rated or that popular phrase certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Make a case for you know maybe why it should be taken down a few pegs. Conversely, uh, find a movie that's usually about 30% and below those nasty rotten movies and make a case for the positive merit in them being that blue velvet is at a, uh, a lumbering 93% on rotten tomatoes. We'll be knocking this one down a few pegs. Fascinating that it is at 93%. I can't imagine how many of those are retroactive. Uh, uh, well, like I was telling you, I was going through the quotes uh-huh. and there's only three rotten quotes and none of those are Ebert's. So let's say four negative reviews. <laughs> well, also, done. it's kind of funny. Like, uh, you know, it's funny, as Martin Short would say. That 93% is not indicative of the initial response to this movie when it was released. <laughs> it's one of the, if this movie was released today with the Rotten Tomatoes system, like this would define a gray area movie. Yes. I think a lot of those are just people that have gone back now. and That is, that is an excellent point. The, the idea that there are some movies that have, a very positive tomato meter score because they're the kind of movie that a film buff or uh, that a critic will do like a retrospective review for. And then that goes back into the history of the movie. So now it's percentage goes up. It's less likely. And there's been so many non-creative movies since 1986, like the Elizabethtown effect (laughs) kicks in for these journalists and they're just like, yeah, but but the thing is it's less likely for a critic to go and do a retrospective review of a movie that they don't like. Yeah. So, when you see a rotten movie, most of those rotten reviews are coming real time. Whereas when you see an older, fresh movie, a lot of those reviews came after the fact decades later. Yeah, like I, I can't guarantee that Modern Times would have been a 100% had the old, the old RT been around in the 30s. Is that when that was released? I think so, right before the talkies. Yeah, it would have been like, what is this bullshit? <laughs> <laughs> Enough of the slapstick. Get to the plot. Yeah. He, we can talk now. Why isn't he talking? <laughs> uh, but being that it's 93%, so wildly heralded and beloved by film students around the globe. And I guess the, I don't know. The linchpins. The linchpins. There you go. Okay. So what, what were the, what were bitches saying about this movie? Okay, Chase Whale from ChaseWhale.com says, To an average moviegoer unaware of Lynch's work, the open scene my allude Blue Velvet is going to be a peaceful movie. But this is Lynch's world, so buckle up, because shit is about to get weird. Fair. Sounds like a linchpin. Yeah. Uh, Norman Wilner from Now Toronto says, You can't laugh this movie off. It won't let you. Well, we're going to try, Norman. <laughs> uh, Ray Pride from New City says... Gestures, ears, hands, bare necks, eyes, held still and fearful, just within his grasp, not clutching, 
Not crushing. Not brushing. Not bruising. Just imminent. The fuck is he talking about? <laughs> right? I'm pretty sure that's uh, <laughs> Garrett, not Garrett Delhunt. What's his, uh, Garrett Hedlund, his uh, monologue in Lewin Davis when he's talking about the show that he's on. <laughs> Uh, I think Ray was just uh, sharing a mask with uh, Dennis Hopper. <laughs> yes, huffing in those fumes. Uh, when we get to the second half of the podcast, real talk, when we discuss how we actually feel about this, we have some trivia that we'll go through and just kind of random facts. And there's a really funny one about the the uh, gas that he inhales. Fun fact that Ray Pride was uh, Dennis Hopper's son double in Blueville. <laughs> uh, Roger Hurlbert from South Florida Sun Sentinel says, Blue Velvet is a film for the aficionado. Pity the viewer who wanders into the movie unprepared. Mm, I disagree with that. Yeah, and it sounds a little uh, elitist. Uh, uh, yeah, it sounds like hella pretentious. Yes, he is a linchpin. <laughs> yes, he he's in the Patreon tier lynch legends, where it's like yeah. the number one, like the most amount of money you can donate. He's a president of the South Florida chapter. <laughs> he has a T-shirt and the hat. Uh, finally, Brian McKay from eFilmCritic.com says, It's Dennis Hopper sucking on an oxygen mask like Darth Vader in Snoop Dogg's Green Room. In other words, it's classic Hopper. Okay. That's what he took away from it. It's so funny. Yeah, that's definitely uh, retroactive. It's the opposite of the guy that was saying, Snoop, you can't laugh yeah, this Yeah, Snoop often. wasn't like a thing until the... Well, he was a thing, but he wasn't like big and prevalent until the early 90s. And um, not to steal your gimmick, but I did here have uh, Peter Travers, our... Uh, our guy. Um, what's it's you, the, I think it's ubiquitous the is the word I'm looking for because he he's he's always not far behind with our reviews here. I think other than Roger Ebert, Peter Travers is probably the one critic that we call out. Uh, yeah, and more most. often than not, I agree with him. Absolutely, do not agree with what he said about uh, Blue Velvet and that it was the best film of the '80s and an American masterpiece. Oh, I mean, can't uh, they can't all be home runs? No, he all grabbed right. the mask after <laughs> he just puffed. He just had like his strand of blue, like crushed blue velvet, like from a I don't know his grandma's fucking bathrobe or something, just just ru- it rubbing after- it against his face. Oh boy, blue velvet is the story of college student Jeffrey Beaumont, played by Kyle McClanahan, who I'm not really sure is ever gonna has ever been on the podcast or ever will. Re- I think he's appear. even been mentioned on the. On the podcast. During one of my many Sex in the City ramblings, I'm sure I talked about how good he is on that show. Is he uh, a good guy or a bad guy? Is he a good boyfriend? He's Kyle McClanahan. So, I mean, uh, he he's hot. Is, that's, that's really what He's that's... hot and he's rich and he's very well-mannered. Trey is his name. And Charlotte dates him and they're engaged to get married. But he, uh, there's just, I, I can't go too deep into detail without spoiling it for our faithful <laughs> listeners. It's. It's one of the better story arcs of the whole series. Oh, um, I can tell you that the average listener, or the average, I guess, Sex and the City viewer, like myself, which means people that have seen the movies but not the show, boo, know that Kyle MacLachlan is not on the in the movies. So we know that it doesn't work out. It does not. But he's great, and there is a there's one episode where he's like just playing tennis by himself. He's just hitting like he's out. He has the machine shooting the balls at him. It's like late at night. And he's shirtless and he's just wearing like, you know, athletic shorts and he's like sweating. So the light's like glistening off him in the moonlight. It's very Lynchian. I'm surprised uh, he, he might have ghost directed that episode. <laughs> uh, but he returns home to Lubberton, North Carolina after his dad suffers a near fatal stroke. As that uh, review mentioned, the opening is very colorful and 
full of life and like you can feel the summertime in the air and then this just randomly old dude falls over. Lynch Lynch has to be weird no matter what. Even to depict the stroke at the beginning of the movie, the guy grabs the back of his neck, which is something I've never seen in a movie to mm-hmm. depict the stroke. So yeah. usually, you know, they go with the left arm. The, or the amour, just, just kind of stare off <laughs> yes. blankly. But no, Lynch has to make a show on it. It has to be different. Slow motion. It's a Lynchian stroke. Uh, then the dog starts playing with the guy's testicles. Not the testicles. He's on his crotch. Yeah, but he's playing with the hose because the hose is still going off. But he's on the I guy's I guess I testicles. could that be like uh, <laughs> a metaphor of some sort. Sparky. Sparky. Making, it is Sparky. Making his round for return after just one episode. Yeah, back-to-back episodes. That, that might be a new record when we're not – in terms of not doing like a specific series focused on someone. We've definitely never timed a dog <laughs> appearing in back-to-back movies. Coming soon this summer with Sparky. God bless. It's a cute dog. Uh, walking home from the hospital, he cuts through a vacant lot and discovers a severed ear. Uh, anyone that's seen this movie, I'm pretty sure the first thing they think of is that ear. It's that probably, was That's what happened to me. Yeah. I mean, that should tell you what we're dealing with here is that the first thing that comes to mind of anyone is no acting performance or any like shot in the movie. It's just a severed appendage. It's like, oh, the movie with the ear. Exactly. Yes. Following instantly by, oh, the movie with Dennis Hopper. Um, I was very sensitive to the scene because of the current events with the uh, coronavirus and whatnot. The fact that he just with bare hands picks this ear up and then puts it into just a paper bag and walks through town with it like dee 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 dee. If, uh, if Lynch had the opportunity of remake and re-release the movie today, do you think that he would make it even more of a point that he's grabbing it with his bare hands? Just a close up. That, and he would lick his fingers after he puts it in the bag. Licks the ear to make sure it's a real ear. (laughs) Or he pulls out, like, um, that super frou-frou hand sanitizer that me and Eddie were always a big fan of, like the hibiscus (laughs) with lemon. Yes. Just douses his hands in him and kind of smells him as he goes away. Uh, He takes the ear to police detective John Williams, not the acclaimed uh, conductor. No. Uh, Now, I don't know if John Williams always acts this way. This is the first time I've seen it in a movie. That I can tell. Uh, but it's almost like the fact that he shares a name with somebody who's just so much further ahead in their career. <laughs> it's almost like he doesn't care. I, George Dickerson is the actor who plays Detective John Williams. Police officer John Williams. Was not getting paid by the hour here. He's just... I mean, there's there's a lot of underreaction. Based on his performance, he may have not been getting paid at all. <laughs> yes. Uh he was the guy that he was the, the the teamster that drove the truck, and then when the actor failed, they just got him. I was like, "Can you please do us a solid?" Yeah, when that fuck, who would have been something back then? When Corey Haim, you know, <laughs> couldn't make it to set, they were like, "Hey, can you wear this suit?" Uh, but yeah, he's. It's almost like he's at the table reading. Yes, and everybody else is shooting the movie for real. Like. All he's missing is reading glasses on the tip of his nose, just looking over him at Kyle McClanahan the entire movie. Uh, He becomes reacquainted with the detective daughter, Sandy. I guess they went to high school together or some shit. Yeah. Sandy, of course, played by... They're 10 years apart, but... Well, uh, IRL. Yes. (laughs) Sandy, of course, played by perennial Lynch actress and America's sweetheart, Miss Laura Dern, recent Academy Award (laughs) winner. Now, Oscar winner. Uh, wouldn't have pegged her as a future Oscar winner just going from 
her performance in this movie. Oh, no. Not not her fault in this case, especially because we know, unlike the guy playing the sheriff, uh, we've seen what Laura Dern can do. Oh, Jeffrey. <laughs> yeah, God. That was, that was just Lynch fucking with you. Again, the entirety. He's the Andy Kaufman of directors. I think he just likes... <laughs> fucking with your head and so he casts a hugely talented actress and then gives her nothing to work with saddles her with like bad lines and just like uh, you just look facial pretty? acting that <laughs> would make jim carrey jealous when anytime that she asks, but why he'll be like because <laughs> because i said so <laughs> i'm i'm david lynch that's why <laughs> i'll be david lynch you be laura dern how about that after eavesdropping on her father discussing the ear with a colleague, Sandy tells Jeffrey that it somehow relates back to a lounge singer named Dorothy Valens. Intrigued, Jeffrey enters Dorothy's apartment by posing as an exterminator and steals a spare key while she's distracted by a man in a distinctive yellow sports coat. Now, I know that this was the 80s, but did you think that this was a little too easy for him to just get into a strange woman's apartment pretending to be a... And the key's not even really hidden. Right. Just opens a cabinet, just <laughs> dangling down, it, like a fucking wind chime. And I, I always, this is why I hate David Lynch because I find myself second guessing what I'm thinking on every scene. Because at first I'm like, so he's was, already won. Yes, I know he's laughing because that's that was the point, right? I think this is too easy, and then I think, oh no, but that's what he's saying. He's saying that it's too easy because it's about to get really bad. Mm-hmm. Every time, every this is too sick. Oh, but that's what Lynch wants me to think. <laughs> Because it's supposed to be sick in contrast with everything else that happened. So it's too much. I don't need that. Maybe if it was a short film, I could put up with that. But in a feature film, two hours of constantly second-guessing what I'm thinking <laughs> about the movie is just too much. Um, so he takes the spare key. They go out to see her perform a little lounge thing. God, what? I don't even know if that thing you do played that thing you do <laughs> as many times as this movie plays Blue Velvet. Uh, yes, they, they had the rights... To a very limited assortment of songs, so they had to just play them over and over. They're like, we can play Blue Velvet every time we need a song, except for <laughs> whenever we need the. Is it Roy Orbison, the the one that Hopper sings? Oh yeah, or, rather speaks over. Yeah, <laughs> later and then whatever uh, Dean Stockwell is miming. Mm-hmm. Those are the three songs in the movie. That's it. It was basically like we can have an uh, an almost famous esque lineup of a soundtrack. Or we can just use the song Blue Velvet nine times throughout the And then the we movie. can afford Dennis Hopper. <laughs> so they see her and then they go back to her apartment. And, you know, it's as good as time as any to bring this up because I have it written several times throughout my notes. What's going on? No. Why isn't he just taking care of his dad? The whole reason he came back home was his dad was like, you know, uh, fucked up by the stroke he has like one of those old school halos on his head like screwed into his head and you know he uh has one of the smokers things in his throat to help him speak and he's in bad shape man it's the mid 80s too technology wasn't up there to where you could just be he'll be okay in the hospital I yeah mean, you needed to keep track of that shit and he's but instead he gets on like this hardy boys adventure where he's like oh an ear i gotta get to the bottom of it uh later in the movie let me fuck you <laughs> <laughs> yes, the the long lost X rated Hardy Boys adventure, uh, the one with the naked French lady. I'm just seeing the illustrated cover Hardy Boys, and then in quote like the colon, and then the quote is <laughs> "Baby wants to fuck." <laughs> it's a subliteral, like a really evil animated like Dennis <laughs> Hopper with the the gas mask on. 
Yeah, it's later in the movie, much later, we finally see him visiting his dad again. And I had already forgotten that the father was a plot point. It was just like, oh, that's right. His dad was in the hospital. It becomes such a non-factor. Like, there's so many non-sequitur shots of it that it's like, is this just Lynch being weird? Like, there's just some old dude in a hospital. But, oh, that's his dad. You can... Yes. <laughs> uh, speaking of Kyle MacLachlan, like, now that we're settled into the plot, pretty much... By now, right, you have the ear and you have – we're about to hit the introduction of Dennis Hopper pretty soon and that's when things get weird. But, uh, well, <laughs> to say the least. I was going to say we have – that's taxing the definition of the word weird. Um, the, the idea, the big idea behind Blue Velvet and David Lynch's take on it and all that stuff is just to contrast, I guess, average, everyday Americana – with the shit that lives underneath, right? From the opening shots where you see the bugs under the grass after, you know, everybody's happy yeah. and, you know, having the stroke or whatever. So, again, the idea is that... I think Kyle a movie McLachlan, called What Lies Beneath did a lot better job. <laughs> hey, a movie called American Beauty asked you to look closer mm-hmm. and it turns out that, that Kevin Spacey was not as happy as you thought. And, in, and then in many it became ways. meta. <laughs> uh, but, so, for this to work, Kyle MacLachlan has to be the average guy, mm-hmm. which he is not. No. And that's probably my main problem with this movie. He, Kyle MacLachlan, is as weird as David Lynch and the movies of David Lynch in the sense that he goes looking for trouble. The average person doesn't. The average person would just go out on a date with Laura Dern. But when Laura Dern is there flirting with him, he's just like, so what did you hear about the ear? Yeah, and... It's so funny, like, the character of Jeffrey is written to be very charming, and David Lynch's interpretation of what charming is, is him being like, uh, you know, talking about school, and, you know, how's your family? Hey, have you seen my chicken walk? And then he, like, <laughs> w- walks really weird. It's... That's I'm, flirting. I'm curious Lynch what... Version. Yeah, I'm curious what, you know, however old David Lynch is, so, like, in the 50s and 60s, like, what he thought flirting was. Uh but you can tell, right? They're they're kindred spirits and they're just regular spirits. Laura Dern has worked with Lynch before, but she managed to break out into uh, just average, uh, what do you call it, mainstream movies. Yeah, and did great. McLaughlin, fucking Star Wars. Yes, McLaughlin. He's no, he's too good for mainstream. He's just gonna stay with the really oddball uh, filmmaking. So that's why he, he works so well with Lynch. His career is basically David Lynch projects, Sex and the City, and Portlandia. <laughs> And then he All looks hail. at you in the eye. He's like, define me. I dare you. <laughs> so breaks into Dorothy's apartment looking for clues. I don't know, red herrings, whatever. Again, we're dealing with a really obscure version of the Hardy Boys here. Um, the signal to get the fuck out of there is Laura Dern's going to honk three times. Of course, this fucking, uh, what's the word I'm looking? Tem- the temerity of... And just the you know the egotism of man here when it comes to Jeffrey, he's like, "Oh, I'll just go ahead and take a piss." So he's to mark his territory. Yeah, exactly. that he's in a new spot. So he flushes the toilet at the same time she's honking the horn. He's walking. He hears the key in the door, so he runs and hides in the closet. Dorothy comes in and basically just acts like me when I know I'm home alone, like semi stripping, taking off my wig, you know, just kind of walking <laughs> around half nude, uh, laying on the couch, then getting down on the floor, and all fours looking at a picture. <laughs> It's just like you. It's pretty standard stuff. The only thing that's missing is like ordering a big box meal from Pizza Hut. (laughs) And he's meanwhile, he's watching from the closet the entire time. 
clearly having never done this before, he makes, you know, several rattles and noises. I don't know if it's the American Pie 2, the boner hitting like the <laughs> the edge of the closet. But she smartens up to it, goes and grabs a knife, opens the closet, you know, is holding him at knife point. And the movie turns into a porno for about it beca- five minutes. I was about to say, it, it's a David Lynch movie. So this is the type of thing you would see in a porn of like, what are you doing in here? Take off your clothes. And it's, you oh, go like at knife point. If this is your first time watching it, you go from like, oh, this is tense, you know, <laughs> to like, what the fuck? McClanahan ass yes. right in my face. <laughs> Trying to be as uh, respectful of this as possible. Cause you know, we, we always describe things with the utmost respect and class on here. She just forces him to strip and then just kind of gives it a little lick and a little tug. And then she takes him to her couch. They start making out, and then the framing is is key here because so McLaughlin is naked by yeah. now. But oh, you get a full hog shot of him in this movie. Do you? He like when he's running to scramble back in. It's just like flapping oh, in the breeze. I didn't see the flap. I saw I saw the pubes. Oh, okay. And then I, I the, blushed and I looked away. I guess I missed the what is it? the the merkin. <laughs> <laughs> The only, the only reason I know that term is Gina Gershon talked about uh, the Merkin she picked out for... You've seen Killer Joe, right? Yes. You remember like the first shot of that movie is her vagina? Gershon's vagina? When like... Um, what's Who's the... Clearly the, the fried chicken scene later in the movie just Jesus captivated Christ. me so much. That it, is it Emil Hirsch? Is that who's that? I think so, yeah. Like he knocks on the trailer door and she swings it open and it's just a shot of her from like the waist down. I remember now. It was like really her vagina, but she had a Merkin that she wore and I had to look up what that meant. And she said she named it Big Bertha, which I just like, that's the type of shit that's so foul. It just sticks with you forever. (laughs) Completely unrelated, but we'll tie together in real talk. Uh, Gina Gershon uh, auditioned or was pegged to play a role in Friday the 13th part five. And the reason I know that will come back into play in plugs in this episode. Wow. That's a Lynchian uh, <laughs> knot that you just tie there. No, if it was Lynchian, I mean. Uh, you'd be telling to me naked? Yes. <laughs> just And you'd just be looking at me and there would be like a bee on your eyeball. <laughs> so anyway, she is having her way with Jeffrey and he is clearly not against the idea of this. Uh, but she does hear, you know, someone coming down the hall. So we know. Some sort of business is about to pick up because she tells him, you know, get back in the closet and he's getting dressed and whatnot. And then enter uh, Contrarian's favorite, not for this movie, but uh, (laughs) the man, the myth, the legend, uh, Dennis Hopper enters the fray, Frank, which he comes in in a bad mood. He has played Frank. I think I read on his credits eight or nine times. Like he's been a Frank in something like He's like the non-canonical. New like he just he's just Frank, you know. And um, you think that's his thing? He comes in and he's like, "Can I be named Frank?" <laughs> he comes in. He's swearing. I, I don't know. Does anyone else in this movie curse besides him? If they do, they pale in comparison. Because yes. He's he's wearing the swearing pants. F- fuck is his comma in this movie, <laughs> and he's ranting and raving and yelling to the heavens, and then basically sits down. Uh, my, Jesus, my note said Dennis Hopper brings the party. Uh, <laughs> he ruins the porno. That's what he does. Because you're kind of into it. It seems kind of... Uh, uh, once you understand that this is David Lynch's sick fantasy, you're like, all right, let's see what a porno 
looks like through the lenses of David Lynch. It's clearly... And I guess what what that does is like, it's not sexy at all. No, (laughs) no. Because, yeah, Hopper comes in, he has a, like a gas mask type thing, like an oxygen mask. uh, And he begins huffing from it. And he is just barking orders at Dorothy here about, you know, spread your legs. And like, uh, having seen this before, it, it's still weird, but it doesn't hit you. This is one of those scenes. The first time you see it, it's so uncomfortable. Right. Because you don't know it's Lynch. So you don't know how far it's going to go. And you also don't like, like with Lynch, like we talked about at the very beginning, you have so many questions that are never answered. Yes. You're and constantly second guessing. <laughs> is this real? And basically like real talk, contrarian's corner, whatever. I don't really want to go into detail about what happens here because there's no way to like respectfully or delicately describe it. But essentially the way I heard it referred to in so many uh, reviews and like notes about the movie was ritualistic rape, which uh, I I didn't get a rape thing from it because she was clearly like consenting at the same time. It was some really fucked up, brutal shit that was going on. No, but once the movie keeps going, you realize that she's not really consenting. She he is in the scene is what I mean. Right, like, right, right. You you find out down the line that this is basically uh, uh certainly not her penance, but like um her perceived debt that she owes to him to keep her husband and her son alive. Right. Yeah. I, I think that when you're watching it the first time, you don't know if it's just that oh well, Some this is how they roll. Shit right. They, yeah. This is how they go. They he calls her mommy. Um uh, he keeps his pants on the entire time that weird thing about like he tells her don't look at me but she consistently does so she gets hit in return and it's a very uh off-putting fails to describe this it's yeah it's well it's just so far removed from uh the center well here's the problem that there is you could make an entire movie exploring this sort of relationship whether it's consensual or not and that's enough to fill up a full movie Three movies, if you look at the Fifty Shades trilogy. Oh. You know, S&M, sexual uh, practices. You can't just limit that to your one what-the-fuck scene in the movie. No. Right? But Lynch is not interested in really exploring it. He just wants shock value out of it. So that's really why the scene is there. Not because he actually has anything to say about sexuality or or even male dominance. No, it's just because... What we more? What Why the fuck? Not? Exactly. We keep cutting to Kyle MacLachlan's close-ups, just being really weirded out by, <laughs> inside the closet, and that's really the audience. Yeah. As you're watching, you're also, what did I get myself into? He like bolts right afterwards, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's he it doesn't stay. Uh... That's the whole point of the scene. It, it's like we've talked about it now for maybe five minutes, but the scene itself is like maybe 120 seconds. It just kind of all happens. It's just concentrated. Mindfuck. Yeah. It's just Lynch. It's basically like, I wish there was a picture in picture of just his face, not like reacting, but just looking at you, the audience, because that's basically what this scene is. Directing Hopper and just going weirder, louder. <laughs> Hopper takes off. Jeffrey returns back to Dorothy to like basically console her and pick her up and try to help her. And Man, seducer, because why not? Yeah. He was at, just assaulted. And at he this like, point, eh. he carries her over to the couch. She asks him, hold me, like, do you like me, that type of stuff. And then she's asking him to hit her. And that's, you know, all this voyeuristic activity. That's where McClanahan draws the line. I broke into your apartment. I watch you. I was about to say he didn't come out and interfere. But at the same time, at this point, much like the audience, he didn't realize that this wasn't like part of a much worse thing. That's true. 
I think that the entire time that I was watching the movie today, I I carried with me <laughs> the bitterness of knowing where this was leading. Uh, you're right. I mean, what is it like to watch this for the first time? I think that when I watched it for the first time, I already knew what was coming in a mm-hmm. way. Oh, I knew that, that Dennis Hopper was a bad dude. Yeah. So I never even watched it thinking that it was consensual at all. That's one of the reasons I've never been able to take, uh, <laughs> amongst a myriad of other things, one of the reasons I've never been able to take the second Texas Chainsaw Massacre too seriously because Dennis Hopper's the good guy. And it's like, what is, who believes Dennis Hopper's the good guy? It's like um, Alan Rickman being the good guy in something. <laughs> Keep in mind, I haven't seen any of the Harry Potter movies, so I don't know I, how that pays off. I, I kept my mouth shut about Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's been so long since I saw it, but it, I could have also been simply conditioned by the fact that he hits a woman and that automatically. As it should. Just, right. But. But there is such a thing as, you know, consensual SM. What SM, you know? So I don't know. I was I was too young and naive about the world when I watched it to even consider that as a reading. Speaking of the world in general and naivety, Jeffrey's pretty much troubled by this. The next time he sees Laura Dern, he just starts his soliloquy about what he's seen uh with It's a Strange World. And I mean that that's like uh the obituary for David Lynch, the headline, <laughs> it's a strange world, Lynch dead at 137. <laughs> He's basically realizing that there's more to this than he understands. He kind of fills in Laura Dern on what his plan is, but he ends up staking out Frank and is there and he sees all this bad shit happen, what kind of a bad duty is. We never really find out what his ties or relations are, but we do find out that this mysterious uh, yellow man is working with Frank. But I don't know if he's in the mob or what it is, but he it, it brutally matter. kills some I, people. I don't think Lynch knows. It all that backstory is just sort of to put you at ease that he is a bad guy. Yeah. So he can move on with the story. <laughs> the rest of the movie doesn't work if you don't really know for sure that Dennis Hopper is L- Lynch filmed up to that uh weird sex scene and then the studio's like he's the bad guy, right? <laughs> and Lynch is like, fuck. <laughs> Test audiences were not sure, <laughs> so they had to add uh, some more stuff. Uh, when when McLaughlin is is telling Laura Dern about this, she launches into a soliloquy of her own that is completely disconnected from the movie. Anything that has happened, anything that will happen, is it's this just, about her dream? Yeah. Okay. When she just goes on, she dreamt about robins. When the robins bring the light, like the world's all fucked up, but like this. Horde, not horde, but like a gaggle of robins brings light back to the world or some shit. Yeah, so I'm guessing the point is that she is so far removed from the grittiness of the real world that now Kyle McLaughlin has experienced that she can't even understand really how fucked up it is, everything that he's telling her. Instead, she's just thinking, well, I dreamt of a house with a white fence and we're going to have kids running around. Uh, it's sort of her Oscar clip. But it's also kind of underlined by the fact that she is also not a real human being. Just like Kyle MacLachlan is not your average guy, she went too far in the other direction. It's not her fault. She's a great actress. I think Lynch just told her, hey, dumb it down. It's like he just wants to consistently give her these scenes to remind you she's the young, naive one in the story. Yes. She's the one that doesn't know how fucked up America is. She was like two steps away from having like an oversized lollipop in her hand the whole time. (laughs) Her big teddy bear. Yeah. (laughs) Hair and pigtails and... I don't know. Bringing it back to Corey Haim and Corey Feldman. She's got a Corey and Corey poster on her wall. 
through this, he can't shake Dorothy. I mean, I do think he really does care for Sandy, Laura Dern's character, but Dorothy weighs heavy on his mind, so he goes back to see her. They end up engaging in the... Uh, they become the beast with two backs, I should say. They start dating, basically. Yeah. and There's like a montage of revolving doors. It just <laughs> McLachlan, She constantly opening the door, McLachlan walking in, <laughs> taking his shirt off. She kisses him on the cheek. It's all the same day. He just goes home and changes just because like his clothes get torn up in the fracas. Yeah, just more Lynchian shit. Their sex scene. She asks him to hit her. Yeah, and eventually he acquiesces. Like he... slow motion, the roaring of a tiger in the background. Pretty brutally, and then we get like a shot of her, a close up of her mouth, uh, busted. And because it's Lynch, you just don't know if it's supposed to be sexy or scary or disturbing or funny. I don't know if I, again, I've used the word off-putting already probably a baker's dozen times, but that, it's not any of the things you listed. It's just off-putting. It's why am I watching this? It's Lynch. It's Lynch. But those Lynch pins, man, they were going nuts. But that's the thing. Much like the the Dennis Hopper scene, it's almost there, almost it, for shock value. Yes. Because it doesn't end up doing much for Kyle McLaughlin's character. It's, it's so superficial. I would think that everything he experiences in this movie would fundamentally change who he is. But not really. Throughout the entire movie, I mean, he gets beaten up. He he, he has weird sex. But in the end, we arrive to a place where he's the same person that he was at the beginning. Yeah. I guess, if anything, what the takeaway is supposed to be is that he does care for her so much that he'll hit her. That's that David Lynch mentality right there. Or does he? That's the David Lynch <laughs> question. Every every scene, every conclusion you take out of a scene is punctuated by, or does it? It's, uh yeah, every David Lynch, like, theme, overriding theme, is a definitive statement followed by a question mark. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> After one of their many afternoon sessions, he comes out into the hallway. He's getting ready to leave. Frank shows up with his ragtag team of, like, Every bad guy from Streets of Rage, they're just kind of hanging out in the background. Uh, Frank says, let's go for a ride. They end up going to a brothel. Jeffrey's just being absolutely tormented, physically and mentally abused. This is uh, part one of a two-part series of the lip-syncing to Roy Orbison's In Dreams. This is where he has um, Ben, the man who runs the brothel. Oh, I did realize it was the same song. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. I think I was too distracted by Dean Stockwell's... Dean Stockwell, there you go. Yeah, Dean Stockwell's attempt at matching Dennis Hopper in the... The, the, the weirdness real, department? The weird-ass portrayal of his character. And he's got that white powder on his face that's never really explained. But yeah, he um, he has like a, a shop light that you would use to work on a car. You usually hang it from the roof of your, the hood of your car, excuse me, when you're working on the engine. And he's just kind of holding it in his face. That could not have been comfortable... <laughs> Because those fuckers put off heat, man. Um, it's it's one of those things where you wonder, was it his idea or was it Lynch's idea? Because I think if you're one of those actors that likes to play, working for Lynch is your dream come true. Because anything you bring to the table is going to make it into the movie. It's a shame Robin Williams never worked with David Lynch. <laughs> Could he have out-Lynched Lynch? Probably. <laughs> where Lynch would have been like, that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> David Lynch. Let's bring it back a step. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and then it, this is like um, a preamble to shame the scene of Fassbender just watching Carrie Mulligan sing New York, New York, 
where he's just kind of looking on and his eyes are welling up. The only difference being, of course, Dennis Hopper didn't drop the, the one single tear down his cheek. Because he knows how to restrain himself. He's an actor's actor. So he doesn't go for the cheap emotion of the single tear. Yeah. And he, instead, he sings along, but he just mouths the words. So this causes Frank to just yell at the top of his lungs about fucking. and He quotes Jay from Clerks 1 or 2. Where he oh. goes, I'll fuck anything that moves. <laughs> so then they take off. Uh, they're going like over a hundred down the freeway. There's at least six people in this small car that's not equipped to seat more than maybe five. Peruvian flashbacks all over <laughs> every time they got into that car. Um, he's obviously really concerned about what's going on, and then all it takes is a shot of Dorothy just kind of looking back and concerned at him for Dennis Hopper to just flip out. He pulls over off the side of the road. He starts huffing off his gas mask, tries to kind of molest um, Dorothy, to which... Jeffrey stands up for him, punches Dennis Hopper in the face. He's being held by three guys in the back seat, and yet somehow is, is able to get a right cross off. <laughs> yeah, it's not even a, a a weak punch. He goes all the way through. The way it's shot too looks so hokey, though. It looks like a, one of those boxing gloves. Boing! It just comes out at him. So they pull him out of the car. Dennis Hopper puts lipstick on and then begins kissing because. him. Because yes, <laughs> be David Lynch. Yes. <laughs> Best picture, Blue Velvet. Kisses him, uh, plays that Roy Orbison song again, uh, and then gives him a proper shellacking. Says, hold him tight, and just starts beating the shit out of him. And basically beats him unconscious and leaves him. As much sense as the movie has made before, which is very little, this is where it really lost me as far as the plot goes. Because there's no reason for Hopper not to kill McLaughlin then. It's not just that... In his mind, McLaughlin has disrespected him and his woman hostage or whatever. He's also a witness. Yeah. He's seeing his face. He's in the face of his entire, was it Streets of Rage? (laughs) Posse. He could identify him. He could go to the cops, which is something he should have done a long time ago anyway. And yet he just leaves him there. I say Streets of Rage, a much more time appropriate reference would be Final Fight. They were the. Yeah, they're contemporaries, aren't they? Uh, Final Fight was 80s. I guess you're right. Streets of Rage, I think, was very early 90s. I mean, if you said, like, Golden Axe, I would have stopped you. So, no, too far back. <laughs> We've gone too far. We we're not watching Conan the Barbarian. Dennis Hopper and his Vikings <laughs> walking down the street. In 1987, North Dakota Lynch. or whatever the fuck they were. Um, that's going to bother me now. Where were they? Is it North Dakota? Was I right? No, North Carolina. North Carolina. Same thing. Just a lot colder. So, the next morning is a sobering one. For Kyle McClanahan, to say the very least. You keep calling him Kyle McClanahan. (laughs) I'm pretty sure it's Kyle McLaughlin. One of us is wrong. It's not you. (laughs) I don't know where I got Kyle McClanahan. It's it's not going to change, though. It's it's embedded into my my lexicon. That was his name in Sex and the City. It was Trey, but uh, Trey McClanahan. <laughs> there you go, Kyle McLaughlin. Excuse me. So a sobering morning for Jeffrey. Indeed, he kind of wakes up from this uh, near death ass whipping. Goes back to his apartment or home or wherever the fuck he's staying. It's his home because uh, his, his parents. Yeah, his home. mom and his aunt are there, and he's just like reliving all of these just. Uh, vicious sex sessions he's had with uh, Dorothy and and with Hopper, if you count this mooch. Yes, and I don't know if you can count this as a uh, an Oscar clip because you couldn't show this on 
broadcast television then or now. No, you just have to show him crying. That's the only yes, <laughs> the only broadcast safe part of that sequence. So he realizes that he can no longer basically follow this trail. He needs to bring in actual shoot law enforcement. The most sensible thing he's done in the movie. By far. So he goes and brings the case to Detective Williams. uh, And he postulates his theory that Dorothy, uh, her husband and son are being held hostage. That's why she has agreed to this. When they were at Dean Stockwell's, he hears, or Hopper says, let her see her her kid. So that's where they're keeping the kid. We're reminded he has a dad because we just get like a random, like a fade transition into him with his dad in the, the hospital. It's um, date night with Sandy and Jeffrey. They go out, have a really nice date, do some dancing. It, it it's like it feels like Pleasantville. This scene. Yes, uh, they had a before they start fully open mouth kissing. They there's low dancing, and my thought was before they started making out heavily. My thought was, well, after you've gone through everything that he's gone through, this doesn't cut it. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that's what the movie was going to show me, that now he's attempting to have a a relationship, a normal relationship with Laura Dern, but he's not going to be able to do it because he's just seen too much. His kiss then is Hopper. There's no no going back. But no. (laughs) Instead, he just... They comically suck face with each other. Yes. While everybody watches and applauds. And And the the, the light intensifies. Yeah. Laura Dern has three... Female friends that never get a line, but they're always looking from the corner, like giggling and just pointing at Kyle MacLachlan. Isn't he dreaming? <laughs> it's uh, yeah, her friends, Marty, uh, Rizzo. <laughs> no, there's no Rizzo there. <laughs> For as much as I love Grease, I am completely brain. I I know Marty because she's the hot one, and the other ones, I don't know. Uh, what's the um, hair saloon dropout? Not hair saloon. Beauty school it's dropout. Beauty school. Hair saloon dropout is. The, <laughs> it's grease too. That's like, that's the knock. That's oil slick. That's the <laughs> that's the hit song from that movie. Anyway, so they take off after a good night. They say "I love you" to one another. It's a magical evening. They're on their drive home. There's a car trying to run them off the road. They get to Jeffrey's house. Mike who is the scorned ex-lover of Sandy, gets out of the car, and he's got his crew fucking jughead and everyone from Riverdale with him. <laughs> and they're ready to beat his ass when, you know, you think you're dealing with a normal movie, and then again, Lynch just throws that that uh, sidewinder at you as they're at Jeffrey's house, and then a very beat-up, bruised, and battered... And naked. Uh, and naked, Dorothy just stumbles in. And then Mike at first like looks at her, is that your mom? And then looks back at her and is like, oh shit, we got to get the fuck out of here. Guys, it's not his mom. <laughs> Better leave. It's a very beat up nude woman. It's so weird. It was never explained in the movie how she made it to his house, how she ended up in the situation. You asked me as we were watching it, and I foolishly said, I'm sure they explain it. No. <laughs> In fact, this is almost... Speaking of the naivety of the man. Yes. I became a member of that community. (laughs) It'll turn out okay. For one moment, you were Laura Dern in this movie. We're in the hands of an assured storyteller (laughs) that knows how to tell a story. So they take her to Sandy's home, the Williams residence, because her dad will be there. They can get an ambulance there quick, all that good stuff. She is just, like, inconsolable, but also just fawning over Jeffrey and 
Doesn't she even say my secret lover? Yes, she does. I was, it's so over the top. At the same time, and I hate it for this, it's the best scene in the movie, in my mind. And I hate that the movie doesn't follow through because this is where it comes to a head. And, And I laughed while we were watching it. And I told you, I, I mean, I felt bad. I felt the need to explain to you because I was laughing at something that's pretty horrifying because the woman is naked and mm-hmm. she's been through a lot. And obviously she's uh, she's clinging to McLachlan because he's sanity in a way. But what made me laugh was that Sandy's mom is there and she is not acting like anybody would if you brought a naked, bruised woman She's so calm and matter of fact. Yeah, she's way too chill. It's almost scary because you'd think that she's part of Dennis Hopper's gang. She's about to call (laughs) them instead of calling the cops. Um, But then what really makes this great, it it gave me a window into what I thought the movie was really going to be about for the last 30 minutes or so. Mm -hmm. And it isn't, which is the idea that Kyle McLachlan has been living two lives. The, The squeaky clean life with Laura Dern, where he is... Uh, the dreamy boyfriend that has, you know, has come back from college to take care of his dad. And he's showing a healthy interest in a mystery that's nowhere near as fucked up as anybody else knows. But then on the other side, he's been sort of, he's become the secret lover of Isabella Rossellini. And he's seen some shit and he's, it's it's a darker, crazier, disturbing side of his life. And in this scene, they come together. And the best piece of acting here, overshadowed by Dennis Hopper's crying and singing and yelling in every other scene, is Laura Dern's face when she realizes that Kyle McLaughlin has been sleeping with Isabella Rossellini. Oh, she's terrified. It, I mean, it gets maybe four seconds of screen time. But to me, that was like, oh, wow, shit hit the fan. Now we're about to get interesting because it's it looks like gonna... donald sutherland in invasion of the body snatchers that like <laughs> close-up of his face oh! <laughs> yeah. um, and, and he i mean mclaughlin does well too because he's trying to he knows he can't explain it he, oh it's the, the awesome jig is up it's awesome too because david lynch makes sure to like shoehorn in his his thoughts of how catty women are with each other because there's like that shot of Isabel Rosalie like looking over at Laura Dern and just be like, that's right. <laughs> he's hugging me, yeah. not you. And but McClanahan is like he's oh God, it's so perfect. It's me at 19. Like he's <laughs> he's got his arms around this nude woman in front of him while he's looking at Laura Dern, like, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's not what you think it is. <laughs> uh that movie, so the movie peaks there, and the last thirty minutes of the movie should have been something completely different. It should have followed through on this, but Lynch had other things in his mind. He's like, "No, let's see how much weirder we can get." <laughs> so they take her to the hospital. She, you know, I, I think the last line she has in the movie is "Hold me, I'm falling." When she's getting loaded she's in, in the, the stretcher, yeah, yeah. I, I honestly thought. Once I realized what was happening in the last part of the movie, that that was the last that we weren't going to see her again. Her original last line was a deleted scene where she's in the hospital and she looks in the mirror and says, "It looks like I still have some healing to do." <laughs> so she's she's out. She's out of the situation right now. Uh, but that's not to say there isn't still a situation because Detective Williams is following through. There's going to be the big showdown. He's going to Frank's compound. Also, the man in the yellow. He he knows that uh, we find out the man in yellow is uh, Detective Williams' partner. I think Tom is his name. So, Jeffrey ends up going back to Dorothy's place. Not entirely sure why. Because. Because. David Lynch. Yeah. God, I would love to be in, like, a a production meeting with him. But why? Fucking because. (laughs) 
So he shows back up at Dorothy's apartment, and there is a scene of a- absolute violence there. It's really gross. For as many horror movies as I watch, like, uh, the man in the yellow, the yellow man, excuse me, the yellow man, as Bruce Springsteen would say, is standing there upright with, like, a piece of his head missing. Yes, you can see the brain. Blood is just kind of pouring out of his nose and his mouth and his ears. It's it's in the blood, the red of the blood is so vibrant on the yellow coat. It's just very, very disturbing. Off-putting, again, the, the word of the day. And uh, another gentleman who we cl- quickly realize is the husband of Dorothy is in a chair uh, with a bullet through his head. And a missing ear. And a missing ear. That's how we know. So we find out where it came from. Why that ear was where it was. That makes sense. Because. <laughs> exactly. It even contradicts what you would think would make sense, which is they cut his ear to show it to her, to show them, show her that they mean business. Mm-hmm. Then why is it just outside? <laughs> it would Sprouting be wildlife. Yes. I mean, she would have, it would be in her trash can. <laughs> so while this is going maybe. on, there's a massive shootout at the uh, Frank's compound with the police. A lot of shit going haywire. Uh, because the man in yellow or the yellow man, I don't know why you keep calling him the man in yellow, Halloween five on the brain. The man in black. Yeah, there you go. And he hears his radio and he says, I'm going to let them find you on their own. So he goes to leave. He's walking out as he's leaving. Uh, Jeffrey sees Burt Reynolds walking through the parking lot, <laughs> realizes that it's Dennis Hopper in a oh, Burt was- Reynolds costume yes. cosplay, runs back to the room to hide, has the radio. He's phoning and saying, hey, I'm here. Come help me. And then he realizes, fuck, he's got a radio, too. And then this turns into a slasher movie. This turns into Jessica Biel hiding in the closet from Leatherface. Yeah. he. So knowing that Hopper has a radio and that he's listening, he tells, he t- in quotation marks, he tells the cops, hey, I'm hiding in the bedroom. Come get me. Please. Ostensibly, he pulls the, uh, uh, here I come. You better not come out and pound me from <laughs> the Home Alone. Yeah. Yes. Then he hides in the closet and waits there while Hopper walks in and Hopper goes, he announces to the world that he is there. Um, he basically comes in with a, a New Orleans marching band. Like yes. he's, I'm here now. Uh, he shoots the... For a guy who's got a silenced gun, he's making sure to make enough noise on his <laughs> yes. own. He doesn't care about the neighbors anymore. No. Uh, he shoots uh, the man in yellow. He shoots, I think he even shoots uh, Dorothy's husband that's already dead. And he's shooting just indiscriminately into the rooms. And then, much like Leatherface in the 2003 masterpiece, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, realizes that, because he hears a little ruckus coming, he realizes that the... Uh, that Jessica Biel is in the closet. Yeah. The, the object of his desires behind the closet. While he was shooting indiscriminately in the bedrooms, McClanahan came out, grabbed the snub nose off of uh, the yellow man's person, took it back in the closet with him. Dennis Hopper, like an idiot, doesn't just shoot at the closet first and then open it. He kind of comes up. He takes one last huff from his oxygen mask, opens it, and it's fucking um, burn after, after reading. reading. <laughs> he opens Again, it. reverse. Yeah, uh, and just smiles and then gets shot right in the fucking forehead with a snub nose. <laughs> And he falls down. Laura Dern comes into frame. Why is she there? I'm, I'm trying to think. She's like, it's not quite Judy Garland, but uh, 
Maybe Anne Margaret would be a better. She like falls against the wall with her hands like splayed out. Oh, Jeffrey, Jeffrey. <laughs> the birds and squirrels follow her in. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then behind her is Detective Williams, who has his gun drawn. Too late, buddy. Yeah. And, but there's so many unexplained things. At this point, it's almost just stupid of us to keep saying, well, nothing makes sense here. But why Why were things staged that way in that apartment other than David Lynch wanted it to be weird, right? Who – I mean, I can imagine that the man in yellow killed, tortured, and killed the guy without the ear. Yeah. But who fucked up the guy in yellow and why that way? Why would you leave him just standing up, bleeding from his nose and ears with a piece of his skull missing? Was it Hopper's work? And if that was Hopper's handiwork, because why didn't he kill him? Exactly. Yeah. The Tarantino watched this scene. It was like, I think they're onto something with that ear thing. <laughs> you know what would have made this movie better? <laughs> if we had seen what happened that caused him to lose the ear. And then the Robins bring the light. We we go to, I don't know how far in the future. Well, his dad is fully recovered. Is He's he? grilling. Oh, okay. I couldn't tell if that was his dad or not. But all his... It could be someone else. It could I just, just be the neighbors, the, yeah. The familiarity of the wave, I, I just assumed. And also because everything in this last sequence is supposed to scream happy ending. So I assumed it was a, his dad was out of the hospital. Whoever it is... <laughs> What we do know is McClanahan and uh, Laura Dern are together as they do love each other. And they are preparing breakfast, lunch, what have you, with Billy Madison's grandma. <laughs> and they see a, a robin with a, uh, an insect of some sort in its mouth and basically talking about how the robins bring the light. And I guess this is to tie the beginning and the end together that what's underneath will never beat like what's pretty on the surface. and. It's the final. It's not the final shot, but I believe in the original cut. The final shot is that shot of the bird on the window with the bug in his mouth, its mouth, uh, while they go. Wow! But it, I think it's a grandma that goes. Oh, that's so gross! I could never eat bugs yeah. or whatever. Cut the credits. But then I guess there was a test screening, and people were kind of puzzled by that ending. <laughs> so then they had to tack on one last shot of Isabella Rossellini at some park with her playing son. her kid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And her son's wearing the little birthday hat with the the top, the the propeller on top, I should say, that uh, is seen in her apartment at one point in the movie. The child runs into her arms and hugs, and then the camera pans to the uh, beautiful blue sky of the summer afternoon. And then we fade to black as uh, Someday by Sugar Ray begins to play over the end credits. As sung by Dennis Hopper. Oh God! And that's where we someday, f- motherfucker. <laughs> that's where we found out that Sparky was in this movie. Yes, and we also found out it was written and directed by David Lynch because we couldn't tell. No shit, a lot of David Lynch. David Lynch being really snarky about America at a time. Well, no, that's not true. This was made in the eighties. I was going to say at a time where we need to be as united as ever. Mm. I don't need somebody to tell me that America is not great, <laughs> that it's all surface. Uh, that would have been the Reagan era? Late yeah, 80s. because uh, yep, because uh, Bush Sr. took over in 88. So The last gasp of the Reagan era. I mean, maybe that's it. Maybe this is a commentary on the Reagan era. We'll never know because David Lynch will never tell us. He doesn't have the balls to really like take a stance <laughs> and be like, this is what my movie is about. Instead, anything you bring to him, he'll go, maybe. <laughs> that would be great, though, if they had the Dennis Hopper character. Well, I'll... Fuck anything that moves. 
including the economy. <laughs> um, let's go to real talk so I can explain, uh, make clear to the listeners that I do know that it was Jay from Silent Bob, Jay and Silent Bob, referencing Dennis Hopper and not the other way around. Yeah, let's move along. I can't believe how much we got out of this. I was expecting this to be like really short. That's damn fine coffee you got here in Twin Peaks. And damn good cherry pie. Brilliant. <laughs> I have absolutely no idea what's going on. And we're recording for Real Talk for Blue Velvet. All right. As I had mentioned in the first portion, Contrarian's Corner of Blue Velvet, it was released on September 19th, 1986. A budget of $6 million with a box office return of a little bit under $9 million. Again, that would have been just the box office from the time of release because I'm pretty sure if we factored in all the DVD sales and retroactive acclaim for this movie, that would probably be a much higher number. The re-releases, the 3D conversion. Was originally distributed by DLE Group. Basically, I don't want to butcher the producer's last name. DeLaurentis Entertainment Group. Basically, the whole point is... um, People funding this movie had to found a production group to help get the movie released because no one would touch it. Can you blame them? No. (laughs) Uh, Again, 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. As we mentioned in the first portion, that is absolutely a retroactive uh, number of reviews and basically shows kind of what we argue with Rotten Tomatoes of like there's so much that. Uh, it's a very simple concept, but there's so much potential manipulation that can go into those numbers that that's why you have to be careful about it because um, I believe you'll uh, allude to it in a moment here, but um, Roger Ebert of most notable uh, quali- uh, stature, excuse me, was not a fan of it. And it, it's easy to find so many reviews and comments from actors at that time that were like, what the fuck is this? So think of a rotten movie today might not be a rotten movie 20 years from now, 30 mm-hmm. years from now, when it finds its acclaim. Or even a movie that would be, let's just say, 60 or 70% is not, would not be, you know, the 93% of this. Right. I really like this movie. So I, I think that's justified, but I also can definitely concede that it's, um, it, at its time, it was not something that was like, oh my God. And it's not like, uh, now where David Lynch releases something and people already have their minds made up that they're going to fucking love it. This at the time was right. very much like a, what is going on right now? Back then, he was M. Night Shyamalan at the beginning of his career. That is before, a tremendous way of putting it. <laughs> before except, everybody assumed that there was a twist. Yeah, and I was about to say the kind of opposite uh, side of the coin because now every M. Night movie, everyone has their mind made up they're going to hate it before they go into it. So it's... <laughs> Uh, you know, life is about balance type thing. Well, let's go ahead and get into the people that didn't like it before I get into uh, some of my findings about this thing. Yeah, uh, I told you, actually, I did not see Ebert's review listed on Rotten Tomatoes, so I have to go looking for it. I'll close with that one. But there were two other quotes. Um, Joe Baltaki from Philadelphia Daily News says, Blue Velvet is a beautiful treatment of ugly material. Unfortunately, it is just ugly enough to fascinate a lot of people, particularly weak men who have been made to feel subjugated and insecure by women. What? (laughs) Is he saying that 
people is that Gavin McGinnis? Is that is that a proud boy that did that? It's a uh, what culture? Oh yeah, <laughs> no, it's a Philadelphia Daily News. Okay, <laughs> but is he saying that that people would emulate Hopper? Is that it would dated? Does it have a date of that review? Uh, let me look it up. Oh no, I can't look it up from here. Okay, that's fine. I'm just curious if someone like at the time reviewed it, just like. <laughs> He's got his Flyers jersey on, eating a cheesesteak. He's like, I, only pussies would really like this kind of movie, you know? <laughs> it's a terrible Philadelphia accent. I apologize. But uh, commence. David Nazaire from Real Film Reviews says, Weird for weird's sake isn't enough. There has to be something more. Uh, I mean, yes. That statement is correct. I don't think it applies to this movie, but. Uh, we'll get into it. I think you like it more than I do. Mm-hmm. Now, Ebert, from his review. Big Rob. Yeah. Uh, This is the closing. He says, In Blue Velvet, Rossellini goes the whole distance, but Lynch distances himself from her ordeal with his clever asides and witty little in-jokes. In a way, his behavior is more sadistic than the Hopper character. What's worse, slapping somebody around or standing back and finding the whole thing funny? All right. (laughs) (laughs) The big RB taking issue with uh, Lynch's detachment from the material. I mean... I was about to say, there's really nothing funny about it, but it's fitting because the first bit here that I had was uh, Isabel Rossellini claims that during the initial filming of the ritualistic rape scene, David Lynch couldn't stop laughing off screen at the weirdness of it all. (sighs) Though she was baffled as to why he was laughing at the time, Rossellini has said to this day she herself laughs uncontrollably every time she watches a particular scene. Well, I think that we human beings can react sort of uh i laugh at very uncomfortably uh, uncomfortable things yeah uh, i think extreme situations can bring about weird reactions or unexpected reactions that don't conform to societal norms uh, i just average but i think that's such a fascinating case study of lynch himself that he wrote this thing and then he was just like watching he's like what the fuck is this They are actually doing it. <laughs> Hopper didn't complain. Didn't I'm getting he? paid for this. <laughs> so I think that a good place to start is what Ebert actually, he goes on at length on his review. I remember reading it in full when I first saw the movie. And uh, I might have mentioned it here in this podcast, uh, his book, I Hated, Hated, Hated This Movie. There's a collection of his one star and one star and one half star one and a half star reviews. Have his review on um, uh, Friday the Thirteenth Part Four, the final chapter. It might. I, don't know. I remember reading it cover to cover. Yeah. I didn't care about being spoiled. I was like, "Those are shitty movies." There have been. Uh, that's like his review of that on at the movies is like one of my favorite pro wrestling promos of all time. <laughs> like he looks in the camera and he's got his finger up and he's like <laughs> just fucking cutting a promo on them. It's so great. But I, I digress. Go ahead. Um, so his point, his overall point is not entirely dissimilar to what I was playing with in Contrarian's Corner. Uh, I think that everybody can agree, whether you like the movie or not, that it's fairly clear what it's doing, at least on, on one level, which is comparing and contrasting, uh, the beauty of everyday life in America versus what goes underneath and how twisted and fucked up everything can be. Uh, hmm. You know, and and Kyle MacLachlan kind of travels between both worlds. You have, he's dating a pretty girl. He has a nice house. 
even his dad's stroke is kind of <laughs> is not this dark and deep deeply like uh, uh disturbing thing it's just something that happens to good people and so on and then he travels into this world where really fucked up shit that you wouldn't even think of happens and these two worlds coexist in america in the world and it's kind of naive for somebody to live in one without acknowledging the other and so it's a lot of it's stuff that i think it's very interesting and of course I'm saying all this, having watched the movie twice, having read about the movie a lot, having, I'm pretty sure I didn't get all this the first time I watched it, you know? But I think that that's, that's there. But what Ebert's issue was, and I could kind of feel it, is that the way that it's shot, the way that Lynch presents it, detracts a little, it, it, little, it cheapens a little bit uh, the deeper themes. Because when you have uh, Isabella Rossellini as an actress and as a character going through what she goes in the movie. And then you have that intercut with really silly stuff from Laura Dern or from uh, just the community. I-, I think that the contrast works against it. And he was getting really mad basically in that review. And then he does a follow-up. Uh, and I guess he, he did a Scorsese editorial where he's like, okay, I didn't mean that Marvel movies suck. Yeah. I meant... <laughs> Here he goes, I appreciate David Lynch as a filmmaker, but this is why I didn't like the movie, which is well made, but rubbed me the wrong way. And basically, that's he feels that basically Lynch did Rosalini wrong. He asked her to bear herself out in this movie, and then he intercut her scenes, her subplot with... You know, Laura Dern going on about her dreams. And <laughs> uh, I think... I, I don't react to it that strongly. I understand that Eber feels the way he feels about the movie or felt the way he felt. Um, it doesn't ruin it that way for me. But I can see how somebody could read it that way. To me, it's more that the happy scenes, the, the town scenes, the romance with Laura Dern and all that stuff is nowhere near as interesting as the really disturbing shit that's going on with with uh, Dennis Hopper and... With Isabella Rossellini. I think that's by design. This, yes, this, I agree. The story isn't really about Laura Dern or the town. But they're there Or enough. even his fucking dad. Who's, <laughs> yeah, but... So that's, again, you know, a lesser filmmaker... I'm tripping over my words already talking about this. Uh, that is something we would rides so hard in a movie that wasn't made by david lynch it's like his dad's like potentially dying of this stroke and it just it's like referred to in crossfades three times in the movie but again it's david lynch so it's like he gets a pass i respect your point of view that's not my interpretation of the movie uh in fact the best example i can make the way i read the movie is uh, very similar to a episode of The Simpsons called Bart the Murderer, I want to say, from either season three or four. Is that the one directed by David Lynch? That's the one, yeah, it, where it's just like Bart staring at a wall and then like Homer <laughs> comes in and, you know, uh, dumps a, a vat of whipped cream on himself. Anyway, uh, no, it's basically life is normal and going for him casually and then he stumbles into the den of the mob and ends up working for them and then becomes exposed to like the underground life there and everything the reason i compare the two is because it's not uh 
in either case, I don't find it as a situation of it's trying to expose or make like an analogy or, um, you know, pit classes against each other, societal standings. It's just basically this lead character accidentally stumbled into this world that he wasn't familiar with. And, uh, in the Simpsons case, it's obviously way more whimsical and like Bart kind of, I think he owes them a debt. So he has to stay there. In this case, it's all from Kyle McClanahan, like picking that ear up, taking it there and then just following his own instincts to stake out these situations and follow into this rabbit hole just with his more morbid curiosity of it all, which a lot of which is driven by him just wanting to fuck Dorothy. <laughs> and, um, but I don't get that same feeling from it. So I can see like yourself and uh, Big Rob, some of the, not necessarily resentment, but some of the uh, uh, umbrage they could have with the movie doesn't apply to me because that's not how I interpret what I'm watching. And like I said, with like Laura Dern and her character and the town and his mom and his aunt and all that, that is just uh, almost superfluous uh, aspects of the story. I think Laura Dern serves a purpose of bringing Jeffrey back to the center and kind of resetting his standards. Cause I do believe Jeffrey loves her. I do believe that he's, you know, wants to be with her. It's just this normal dude who found this weird portion of the city just by his like own desires to follow this rabbit hole. So I think the story is more of, um, our, darkest not necessarily oh yeah our darkest desires and curiosities this movie to me is like uh when you can't sleep and you you know you pull up some weird shit on the internet to read about like just that because that's where your mind goes in and dark then, places and then you forget to close the browser and your girlfriend who has no idea you were looking up that shit online sees it i'm not talking about that, porn i'm you know like whatever it was that you were looking up because that's that scene where where the worlds collide which i was not i think that i betrayed how much i like that scene in contrarian's corner because it was 100 percent true when when Isabella Rolini comes to the house and Laura Dern figures out what's going on. To me, with my reading of the movie, that scene is perfect. With my reading of the movie, too, it's great. Yeah. 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 Because uh, it's basically like, here's this fucking scumbag I've been on the side faced with like what I want to be and yes. they're meeting each other. Yeah. yeah. But I think that you can apply that to the entire movie, not just his life is split into you know the dark side and the light side but just the sense that yes there's this whole mob business that was going on and i don't think that it exists separately from the rest of the the happy-go-lucky community and i guess because they get so much screen time i can't really just say oh well they're there but they're superfluous i mean there's a lot of stuff that happens to call it like you know the happy side of the town and uh I guess I have more trouble investing on the on the relationship of Kyle MacLachlan and Laura Dern because I, I I see what they're going for and I like that he likes her but he's also attracted to this dark stuff that he can't tell her but on her side the the things that she says and the way that she acts are so just naive that they're comical yeah and when you put that against what's going on in the Dennis Hopper plot and the Isabella Rossellini plot it just I have to, for me to reconcile him, I have to think that it's by design that he's like, no, but you're supposed to compare them. And, and it's, it's not that it's silly by accident. It's silly yeah. because I want to point at how silly they are when they don't know what's going on. And when I, superfluous, uh, 
I said superfluous as a story. What I, I should have been more clear. I think they're superfluous to the Jeffrey character because I, I think it is it's so awesome talking about this because David Lynch. <laughs> oh, could, he would get such a kick out of knowing that you compare his movie to an episode of The Simpsons. <laughs> well, and also like uh, just he, we, we like if he was here right now, we could be saying all these things, and he would just be like, I don't know. But uh, maybe I think it is by design that the whole idea of his dad potentially dying and. He finds himself in these situations. The way I always interpret it is he's trying to just fucking get away from reality and like this situation with his dad and like just find something to keep him distracted. And he's trying to immerse himself with this. And yeah, I, I in seeing what you're saying too, like the uh, Sandy character is so almost uh, sour. She's so sweet. Like it, <laughs> yes. it's so overwhelming. Like, uh, girl next door and just such a sweetheart type thing. So I, I can see some of what you're saying and like the stuff she says to him, but every time he's just so distracted and doesn't like care. And then I, I do believe when he tells her, he loves her. Like I really paid attention to that scene, this go around. I was like, I really believe that that character does love her. It's just, he's caught up in all this random shit. I, I always, as I've gotten older, I have, more issues and i i know that that's just me not necessarily the movie because the movie's playing by some conventions uh but we were just joking last episode about william hurt and uh and andy mcdowell going i love you marry me yeah in, in such a short span of time here i'm willing to give it a little more rope because one they're much younger characters and uh and two because i think that it's also that lynch is doing it in a way that it's it's when he when that happens they're at the dance. They're they're on that side of the movie. The and also by that point of the movie, that's not the thing you're going to be questioning. You're not going to be well, like at that point. If just so much weird <laughs> shit has happened, that of course he's saying he loves her. Uh, if I wanted to rationalize it even more, I would say it doesn't matter if he loves her or not. He's just saying that he loves her because that's how he needs to say to feel that he's back to normal after all the weird stuff that he's gone through. It's, um, and Julio and I talked about this while we were watching the movie, and I think we agree. This is definitely his most easily digestible movie. Yes, I think, uh, well, okay, I say yes, not having seen every movie he's made. I, I've watched a handful, and... Yeah, I, I'm sorry, the movies like Eraserhead, Elephant Man, uh... I watched Dune in college, but I was higher than Giraffe Pussy when I watched it, so I don't really remember too much of it. It probably made perfect sense. Yeah, I was like, this is great. Uh, and then I watched Mulholland Drive in the middle of the night, and his movies, I mean, are perfect for that. Eraserhead is a prime example. Oh, yeah. I finally watched Eraserhead. Uh, it's with so my friend weird. Drew. Yeah, it's just... There's not even a plot there. You can no, just... no, no, no. That's every time I've talked to people about that that don't like it, I'm like, you tried to make way too much sense of it. Yep. Um when I mean easily digestible, I mean... There's a beginning, middle, and end. It's a coherent movie, and I think you... Did you say you thought uh, Mulholland Drive was his most commercially viable? That's what I... I it always struck to me that Mulholland Drive was his most... Uh, I don't know about commercially, but critically acclaimed. Okay. Yeah, this is the one I always feel like when David Lynch comes up, this is the go-to. And a lot of that could be, again, the retroactive thing. But whatever the case, in my opinion, this is his most, I guess, the movie that's most synonymous with him, uh, be it just the general public. And also one that I've you know heard people say 
that you wouldn't think that they like it, that type of thing. What what I'm trying to build towards is all it's it's still a David Lynch movie. And like if you came into it during the scene where uh, Rosalini's like nude in his arms and they're just like chilling in her living room and she's like bruised up and like all that's going on. I realized what I was watching that I had watched this movie leading into that. So when that happened, it felt normal to me and I was really immersed in the scene. And then I stopped for a second. I was like, this is so fucking weird. What's going on right now. And like you said, the, uh, the mom, uh, Laura Dern's mom, mm-hmm. just acting like what's going on is completely normal. Uh, but that's not a feeling that you get in the, anything that has, you know, on the dark side of the movie, all the Dennis Hopper stuff. I mean, yes, they're being weird, but you're never, you don't feel the need to point out, hey, this is not how the average human being acts. Well, and I mean, there's so much to that. The, I guess, maybe playing into your argument, the the sides of happy life are always the ones that are really well lit and mm-hmm. like colorful and look good. And then all the Dennis Hopper and Isabel Rosalini shits, all the muted colors and like the lighting's really shitty. And, and the swearing. <laughs> yeah. And... I, yeah, Dennis Hopper is the only person I think swears in this movie, which is fine. He seemed very happy to do it. Um, it's a strange movie, it is, but I, it works more so than a lot of uh, Lynch movies or projects that I've seen. And also a lot of, I mean, he's a very influential and mimicked director of people that try to just make weird movies be weird. We were in between... Um, Contrarian's Corner in this, we're talking about fucking Nicholas Wendig Rafen. And, you know, that's a guy who, uh, especially with Only God Forgives and um, Neon Demon, was in many aspects just trying to make overly artistic and artsy shit. There's an art to making weird movies that are good. I think, well, I wouldn't accuse Wendig Rafen of not having a purpose to his weirdness, but I think that Lynch definitely has the upper hand there maybe because he's been doing it for longer or what i think he has a more uh refined definition of what he wants to make versus just fucking broad brush strokes uh it's i was thinking about this as we were watching it because there's the nugget of the idea of uh in the back of my head that it's like okay but why would you do this a little bit going back to the the texas chainsaw massacre the original episode more like i get it i get what you're going for as far as the visceral reaction but but why you were like that yes yeah, okay yeah, yeah, yeah. uh i was gonna say i was quoting the whole movie yes <laughs> but, but then i was thinking of course alex likes it so much because you're in for that visceral reaction that texas chainsaw master gives you and you get nothing but a visceral reaction when hopper is just torturing this woman and then when he's torturing mclachlan right and so i'm thinking and as i'm watching i was like Yes, I I am reacting to it, but was it necessary? You know, what makes you as a director decide, okay, this is how I'm going to go about it, and this is how far I'm going to push the audience and push these buttons. But the thing is, as maybe because of as familiar as I am with Lynch's work, you know, I feel like I'm confident that there's a purpose behind it, so I can just go and say, well, there's a reason, and that reason is that we need to be uh, kind of repulsed by what's going on screen so that the transition to the normal stuff hits us harder. Yeah. I don't think both of those scenes should be in it. I think you get enough, you know, allotment for one really weird scene. So like the, the weird sex scene and then the scene where he like kisses him and then beats him up. But like, while he's 
uh, lip syncing to that Roy Orbison song. And then that old prostitute gets out and starts dancing on the roof of his car. It, I would have done away. With, uh, you could have just easily just had him beat him up. Like, but then, but that's probably one of the things that people remember the most about the movie. Which is fair, but like for me, it's like you you can only have one <laughs> like scene that weird in a movie without me like. Mm. Maybe if you're not David Lynch, but if you're Lynch, you just get away with as many as you want. Yeah. Uh, but there is something else that Ebert mentions in his review. It's just that the positive reaction from critics everywhere else seemed to be appreciating mostly style over substance. And he was like, I can appreciate the style. That doesn't mean I have to like the movie. And I can see that. I I can see how when I experience a movie, I am mostly appreciating the style. As in, man, that's just so fucking weird. And that's just so uh, bold in a way that he would just tell uh, Dennis Hopper, yeah, you do this and see how far you can take it. And, and that he would ask this sort of performance from Isabella Rossellini and be not to take anything from her. Obviously she's being brave at doing you know, oh, yeah, yeah. this, but also him as a director saying, and I'm gonna, and then at this point, Laura Dern's ex-boyfriend is going to be there with his buddies. And uh, you mentioned Riverdale. I was thinking of Biff and his gang from back to the future. Nice. It's, they're so just that cliche. Aesthetic. Yeah. yeah. And then she steps out naked and bruised and bleeding, whatever. That is such a, shocking moment but i don't think of it uh i don't hold in high steam because it made me feel something special but other than wow that's really bold that they went and did this Mm -hmm. so i can see how could that could wear off after watching it a few times if you if all you're connecting to is the style and not something deeper in the movie Uh, i don't know that i connect to anything deeper in this movie do you I feel I, I do connect with the Kyle McClanahan character. The idea of just kind of wanting to distract yourself from real life and just ending up on this weird adventure. It's something I can definitely really, I, I can't relate to, you know. The Denton years. I've, geez, I've never been in a closet watching like shit unfold like that. And, you know, it, it's. Obviously, my life's never been a David Lynch movie, but I can relate to the idea of wanting to distract yourself from real world things and finding yourself going down these different rabbit holes and different adventures and all the while having these positive things in front of you that you kind of are uh, willfully ignorant to. And again, one of the rare occurrences of The Contrarians is you and I having completely different interpretations of a movie, and that's definitely happening with this here. So I feel I relate to that. At the same time, as much as I relate to that, th- there's times in the movie where it's just it, I'm taken out of it just by how fucking weird it is. I'm just like, all right, I'm like I, even as much as I could see myself in this character, you know, ten minutes ago, th- this is just <laughs> let's just talk about how weird this is right now. What's what is it with Dean Stockwell? <laughs> <laughs> For real, that that scene of him with that uh, shop light in his face is fucking crazy. But there are things that, that I connect to, and I, I I love that scene of him and Laura Dern dancing when they tell each other they love one another. You're such a fucking romantic. Every time it comes back to that, it's like, of course, because <laughs> you and love and... I'm a firm believer in it. But yeah, just the way it's presented and shot and um, of the David Lynch things I've experienced and taken in, and I use that loosely because like, you ever listen to his album? No. Yeah. I've he listened- sings or is he a musician? He he's a musician. I I can't tell. There's some like audio drops they use. I can't tell if it's him or not. But um, he had a song from that album called "I Know." 
the music video for it is the girl who played Lucy on Parks and Rec. Um, the girl Tom loved, the smoking hot. She's the one that moved to Chicago, and then he goes and tracks her down to bring her back to work in Pawnee. You would absolutely... Do they end up together? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I know who she is. Yeah. Anyways, she's in it, and the music's just so weird. So when I say, like, David Lynch things I've taken in, and it's movies, music, you know, all the things he's done. This is definitely the one that I've watched and been like, yes, I, I, this connects with me. Um, it's still weird in, in many aspects, but this is definitely something that, I, like, I, fucking July, I'm, I'm going to go get this on Criterion when the half price sale comes along. Um, I wonder if how much you connect to this movie. Because of Kyle McClanahan's ass? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Told you, you. you gasped audibly. <laughs> I forgot the whole thing's in frame for like a minute. <laughs> uh, no, I was going to say, I wonder if how much you connect to the movie, not you, but just the the world in general. The royal we. The royal we uh, changes or has to do with how much, uh, this makes it sound like more serious, but you know, how much darkness you've experienced, how much, how much have you found yourself to different degrees on the Kyle... McLaughlin path of I'm gonna go down this weird dark road and just find myself in situations that later regret. Obviously, like you said, never to the to the degree that it happens yeah. in the movie, but the more you can relate to the experience. Of I've it, had a fairly cushy life. It, yeah, I'm not trying to compare it to it, but yes, but making but, decisions you shouldn't and just stuff. Yeah, like yeah, that. yeah, maybe uh, uh, you know less cushy than mine, and that's why you can still connect to it more than I do, mm. and maybe why you and I can connect to it even more than say Jordan uh Jordan I told you like he told me that he did not he was like this movie's not for me and this is absolutely a movie too that if someone like yourself right now and if Jordan like if you say you don't like it I you don't really even have to explain it to me but I want to hear about it I yeah. want to know because I wonder if he has a different reading than the two of us and he's just like no to me it was just fucking weird (laughs) (laughs) or maybe he was just extremely put off by the by the violence of it uh i i wouldn't fault anybody for being he's 22 23 24 yeah i think he's mid-20s okay not like approaching mid-20s neither of us are grizzled vets at this point but there is certainly older than there's definitely a separation but see that sounds i don't want to sound reductive of anybody's opinion if they just absolutely not connect to it no it's not, not like all. oh man wait till you live life and yeah. then you're gonna get with that age gap like you can't understate the idea of people like you and myself and of our age brackets that saw all kinds of weird shit on tv you know staying up late in your room just watching like tnt monster vision on friday and nights and saturday nights shit that wasn't around for people that are as little as you know eight years younger than us and so our definition of weird may be different that doesn't make that opinion any lessened or anything like that but it's just it's something i always think about when i talk to people who Especially about horror movies and weird movies like this that say I'd never seen anything like it. And it's like I just think about didn't you ever go to the video store and just like stare at the cover of Zombie for thirty minutes, like just being like, what the hell is this? Yeah. See, to me, it's less a question of how weird is weird, but more of what you were saying before, which is how much can you relate to the idea of going down the wrong path or going down the 
the weird. If that's even how you interpret the movie, right, right. Yeah. But but if you do and you have life experiences that kind of are similar, then this movie works for you on a very specific yeah. level. Um, to me, and like I said in the first corner, I said it earlier in this segment. The moment where I connect to the movie the most is that clashing of worlds where you have somebody that you love, but that maybe doesn't know everything about you. <laughs> and then that comes to the to the forefront in the worst possible way. That's That to me felt just so human and relatable. And not that I can think off the top of my head of a time when something like that has happened to me, but I can connect to it more. I, I think that's, if not universal, then at least it's more digestible. Well, it's... Especially now, it, it, like I was talking about earlier, it's that the example you made about your girlfriend pulling up your phone, that's that's a scene that it's basically like, you know, yeah, your girlfriend pulls up your search history and it's like, you know, <laughs> Latina asses. What the hell is this? Is Isabella Rossellini. <laughs> <laughs> Isabella Rossellini feet. Just like <laughs> that scene is so universal. It It's your parents finding fucking weed in your sock drawer shit like that it's i mean it's done in the most abstract way possible but that scene is relatable on so many levels and i don't i I still it's gonna bother me for probably the next few weeks about what the mother is supposed to be in that about how she's just so calm about everything and like trying to figure out what her role is supposed to be in that i I think see in my reading of the movie that fits because uh she and again, has, it could just be Lynch being weird. Just yes. be weird. Yeah. Like, wouldn't it be really fucked up if you just don't react? <laughs> but to, to me, if you're seeing it as these two worlds colliding, she is the one that doesn't really have an emotional investment She's got there. no stake in it. Yeah, exactly. No. She's just like, okay. I'm, I'm going back to, it'll be okay if I just behave as normal. I'll just call the cops. It doesn't really hit me. And she's married to a fucking detective, so she's probably seen some weird stuff in her day. Man, so 35... 47 seconds in we haven't even gotten to i know yeah <laughs> we've been we've been uh, I honestly, walking around dude i honestly when we started the or before we recorded when the movie was over i was like there's not a whole lot to the plot of this i was kind of worried that we were just going to blitz through contrarian's corner which is clearly not the case because we're on path to being one of our longer episodes so let me get to my business um I already talked about release date, budget, director, all that good stuff. Uh, David Lynch was nominated for best director for this. Fortunately, he did not win. That went to Oliver Stone for Platoon in the year of 1987. Uh, let's see what else we got here. Lynch to this day has not won a single Oscar. He let's see. <laughs> like he would show up to collect it for real. He would he, just send a monkey to grab it. Who was it that didn't even show up? Uh, Pesci and someone else didn't show up for Best Supporting Actor. Oh, this year? Yeah. Uh, uh, Anthony Hopkins. Yes. Yeah. yeah, you're right. Who ended up winning Supporting Actor? Brad Pitt won. That's why they didn't show up. Because they were like, yeah, Brad Pitt's going to win. <laughs> Pitt's going to win. God bless. The Dorothy role was written by David Lynch for Deborah Harry. I don't know who that is. Blondie. The lead singer of Blondie. Oh, has she been in movies? Has she been in movies? Let me finish the second part here. Oh. (laughs) Harry, sick of receiving offers to play the weirdo after she played such a character in Videodrome, turned it down. Have you not seen Videodrome? I've seen Videodrome. I didn't know that was her. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely smoking hot blonde. Yeah, that's her. Molly Ringwald was originally offered the role of Sandy, but her mother objected to her starring in it due to the graphic content of the film. That would be weird. 
but it would a hundred percent underline that idea. the innocence of the, the character. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. The character of Frank was to breathe helium at the intervals when he used the gas mask in Lynch's original script. But Dennis Hopper suggested this be changed to emyl nitrate, which he knew was used to enhance sexual experiences. How he knew that, I don't... Yeah. God bless him. Hopper only realized years later how bizarre and therefore fitting the concept of helium-breathing maniac talking in a high voice would have been. <laughs> Lynch, however, felt that using helium might elicit laughter in the audience, which would have been undesirable. Yeah, it would have been a step too far. There's so much going on there. It, exactly. It would have been, like, for as much as this movie's too much, it would have been too, too much. The role of Jeffrey was originally offered to Val Kilmer, who turned it down, describing the script he read as pornography, although he says he would have done the version that finally made it to screen. So what did he read? <laughs> it's all... It was... He read a completely different script, and... uh Lynch was just silently, secretly filming him while he was reading. He was, just, he, just like, for, for laughs. Even just entertaining the idea, Val Kilmer's too pretty for this. Like, Kyle uh, McClanahan's a good looking dude, but he's got, like, kind of that Michael Shannon good looking dude, where it's just like, there's still something kind of off about this guy. And, like, in a, it's a, um, a unique look, is the best way to describe it. Val Kilmer would be way too pretty for this. Yeah, I mean, back in 86, the 86 Kilmer, yeah. Val Kilmer. We're not talking MacGruber, Coke ponytail Val Kilmer. <laughs> David Lynch had never seen any of Laura Dern's previous films. Isabella Rossellini had seen Mask and was so convinced by her performance that she wondered why Lynch had cast a blind girl to play in the movie. That's amazing. That I like subtly lost my shit reading that. In the original screenplay, the sex scene between Jeffrey and Dorothy was longer. Jeffrey was to spin the propeller on her son's hat when Dorothy undresses him and Jeffrey learns Frank is coming. Dorothy thinks Jeffrey is her husband, Don, and cries when saying Jeffrey's name. Again, just all David Lynch shit. All this according to Val Kilmer, who read the original <laughs> screenplay. <laughs> and then a pizza guy was going to come in. <laughs> As I mentioned uh, to you, uh, Robert Loggia was originally considered to play Frank, which would have been just too much. Uh, also considered was Willem Dafoe, which... <laughs> too much in a different way. <laughs> Karen Allen, Rebecca De Mornay, Jodie Foster, Angelica Houston, Diane Keaton, Sybil Shepard, Sissy Spacek were all considered to play the part of Dorothy, which Diane Keaton... I, I don't like it. I don't like any of those just because... <laughs> I, I don't want to see him that way. I don't want to see them go through that. I guess this is the only Rossellini movie that I've seen, Isabella Rossellini. I, I told you I've seen her in season two of Alias. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, I was going through a filmography. I'm sure I've seen something else, but nothing else, like nothing popped out. And then again, the last one, just because I read it off to you and I, I wanted to include it just because neither of us knew it, that David Lynch was offered Return of the Jedi, but turned it down. Just what kind of universe we would live in if David like, like Lynch. Like based on Blue Velvet, they offered him Return of the Jedi? Uh, Return of the Jedi would have been before this. Return oh, so of the base of Dune. Yeah. Which makes sense. Yeah, God, what what franchise aimed towards children would see this and say, hey. Well, you know, George Lucas could be weirder and kinkier than we thought. Yeah, they saw it. Uh, we got a project. It's called Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. You, you want to tackle this? <laughs> so 
you know, obviously with a lot of movies we do there, you know, people were potential for different roles and, you know, uh, but with this one, it's kind of fun to play those parts. But, um, obviously from this, he, he gained an affection for Laura Dern cause he used her in and out for projects for the next 30 years to come. And I have not seen a single episode of twin peaks, but that was basically spawned from this movie. If I'm not mistaken. Oh, is that, so, I mean, I know McLaughlin is one of the main characters, um, it's on my it's on my to watch list. How was it on HBO Showtime? Like what was it? Oh, the new one, the new version? No, like the original one. Oh, the original, I have no idea. Did it air on ABC <laughs> Friday <laughs> Family Nights? No, uh if you wanted to watch it, you you just subscribed to this mailing list and Lynch himself would deliver a VHS tape of the newest episode every week I mean, to the, to the Lynch pins around the world. Yes. We're not going to cover ground on David Lynch that hasn't already be covered been covered. He's a fascinating dude. He makes fascinating projects. Um, filmmakers, filmmaker. He, he is, but with that in mind, his shit works differently for different people. And that is probably one of the main things, especially as I've gotten older, I admire about him is that, he doesn't really give a fuck what you think about what he makes. He's just going to make it to make it. And when I say give a fuck, what I mean is he's not going to make some, uh, you know, Marvel dribble where it's just shit made to draw. I was going to go, he's not going to bring back the emperor, but okay. If you want to go take a cheap shot at Marvel again, you're right. (laughs) When there's a much better example, we needed, we needed, Not we. I need to start directing all of my jabs to Rise of Skywalker. I, I vented all of my frustrations in our Avengers episode, our, our five-hour epic. So you're right. He doesn't care about bringing back uh, the Emperor and writing out all the minorities just so that he can appease Reddit. Uh, he has his movies that he wants to make, and he makes them, and he doesn't really care if that garners him any attention or anything like that. Like you said, that's probably a huge reason that he's had six best director nominations and has never won because he's probably not going to fucking show up to get it. <laughs> I didn't know he had been nominated that many times. That's, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. He, I mean, he's de- not to compare him to Woody Allen. Cause they obviously don't do the same thing, but I think he's definitely one of those. If he makes a movie, the Academy is going to be like, well, we kind of have to acknowledge it. So here it is, but no. you're not going to win. So, you know, you're not Green Book. This is so the linchpins don't throw a fit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, I'm glad we did this. I, I, I really don't know what other movies he's done that would work with our little formula that we do as well. Maybe Mulholland Drive. I was going to say Mulholland Drive makes sense. Like It feels like a traditional movie for a good chunk of its runtime before it goes batshit crazy. So maybe a year from now we can revisit put our linchpin hat back on and yeah. go back to that. One of the things I remember the most about Mulholland Drive is that uh, Robert Forster is in it. R.I.P. Yeah. For 30 seconds. But he gets a close-up. <laughs> I think he plays like a cop or something. He steps out of his car. You get the close-up and you're like, oh, Robert Forster is in this movie. Nope. <laughs> you don't see him again. Uh, 83%. So we might have to bend our usual format. But yeah, we could visit that. There'll be a... It'll be a bonus episode, and we'll do it with Jordan. Yeah. I really, Jordan, send us a voicemail or something, or you just give us the 
the very basics of how you feel about Blue Velvet and why. Yeah, just do the Eddie where you sit in your car and talk about the uh, Entourage movie. <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, that that kind of covers my thoughts on the matter. Um, I, I, I think it's funny, though, that we haven't really... You would have expected us to talk a little more about Hopper. But we've kind of... When you said it's been 30-something minutes and we still haven't talked... I thought you were saying we still haven't talked about Dennis Hopper. Oh. <laughs> That too. I, I mean, I didn't even think of that because we were just like we're quoting him and mocking his performance so much that I, he's he's fucking Dennis Hopper. Like he's he's going to knock whatever he does out of the park, yes. even if he's King Koopa, he's going <laughs> to knock it out of the park. And he clearly had no qualms about knocking this performance out of the park. Fearless. But you can go again. I feel like I, this is second or third time that I've made this sort of disclaimer, you can say the same about Isabella Rossellini, right? It's just that Hopper makes that impression. You know, with her, you kind of like look away because it's just so disturbing and whatever. But with him, you just, it's disturbing, but you're going to, that's the part that it's kind of fun in a way. You can, you're going to quote him. You're going to like talk about how fucked up he is. You're not really going to talk about Isabella Rossellini like walking out naked or anything. You know what I mean? That's the... Well, even from the perspective too of like, that her performance being so vulnerable, all those things, these are these things that you can like as um, an actor, an agent reading that script, you're like, Hey, you sh- you could do this and it could be good for you for this, this, and this reason reading that Frank part. It's like, you're just going to be the fucking, you know, the vile, uh, the scum of the earth type. And to come into that and then do it so brazenly, it's just, it, it speaks to him as an actor because, um, you know, that thing I read about, like, Willem Dafoe and Robert Loggia were in the running. I don't know how far that went. It's possible they read the script and like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> it's So it's a credit to him. And also just with how batshit this movie gets at parts, it can become comical in a sense. And at no point did I not believe that Frank because of Hopper's character wasn't that crazy. Yeah, no, he's and he's scary. The yeah. entire time that he is on screen, he's just terrifying. Uh which is a credit to his performance. That's just I guess what I was saying earlier was just that you would make memes about his performance and his character. You can't really meme Rossellini's performance and character Correct. here. Yeah, like uh there should be a go to meme I have on my phone of just don't fucking look at me. <laughs> Don't you fucking look at me. It's I, I read too about um it was the first time him and Rosalini ever worked together. And I guess it, sequentially the first scene they filmed was the weird sex scene. And she was nude under her robe and he didn't know that. So when he like tells her the spread your legs thing, like that's why his reactions kind of like <laughs> uh, cut. <laughs> Where's the Merkin? <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know we watch we watch all these movies we're like man you could tell they're having such a good time and you know I, I, bet, I bet it was so fun on set this doesn't really like strike me as they were cutting up in between takes or anything like that no <laughs> it's just like kyle get your dick out <laughs> but my contract says <laughs> just a butt <laughs> Uh, course of action here we got to rate it um i i this is an a for me not an a plus but a solid a three and a half it's as good as michael 
<laughs> this is why rating is just a joke. Yeah. But, you know, three and a half because, you know, I don't Hey, man, they both have it. Sparky. I, yes. There you go. There's a, there's a link. Um, I just... I appreciate the style more than the substance, and I I can't help, especially on the second watch, I can't help but wish that the movie had explored, had dug deeper on the things that I'm interested in. I want to see what happens to that relationship after uh, Laura Dern just figure out what's going on. But instead, and I, I can't believe I didn't mention this in the first corner, literally the next scene is her on the phone with him saying, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's also her being together. 18. Yes, yeah. but but it's less interesting than, you know, it, again, going back to Michael, I can't believe we're referencing Michael so much in a David Lynch episode, but, uh, you know, how you were saying that there was a much more interesting movie to be made about the William Hurt and and uh, Andy McDowell characters as yeah. older people that are damaged but want to get together. The same thing to me, there's a more interesting movie to be made about these young people that just went through this really horrible shit, but we just fast forward to the, fa- to the happy ending so quickly. You know, so basically, you want your Revolutionary Road version, the young version, with uh, Kyle McClanahan and Laura Dern. Yeah, I mean, I don't really care about. It's cool to see Hopper getting shot in the head and everything, but that entire final sequence, this last dude, I don't know how that didn't come up. Like for as much just visceral horror shit that I've watched and constantly (laughs) reference on that, just that one static shot of him after he he's been uh, fucking shot in the head. I don't know what the the goop they used behind him was to like you know be brains, but it was disgusting. And the the yellow man with like the part of his brain exposed, and then when Jeffrey takes the gun from him and it kind of nudges him, so like more blood comes out of his nose and mouth. Yeah. I'm like, that is disgusting. That is disturbing shit, man. But I didn't. I, I would have traded that for just something. That has more to do with the relationship between Laura Dern and uh, and Kyle MacLachlan and uh, Isabella Rossellini. It's cool hey, th- that he got shot, but to me, that's just uh, it's more mechanic than anything else, yeah. right? We have a bad guy; he needs to get his. But what about all the emotional stuff that I just connected like five minutes ago? You know, so yeah, three and a half. It's still, I mean, it's a good movie. I think anybody should watch it at least once. Yeah, uh, wouldn't blame them if they bail halfway through. <laughs> It's, it's, you know, I become more and more sympathetic and understanding of this the older I get. It's definitely one of those movies that if you watched it at 16, you would probably take not the right things away from it. Oh, I definitely got a lot more out of it today than I did when I watched it the first time, maybe 10 years ago. Yeah, it's one of the rare movies that I'd be like, don't watch it until you're like 30. Cause it's Or watch it, but don't be afraid of giving another shot. Oh, down the line. Now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, moving along, I mean, Jesus, this is going to be a two-hour <laughs> podcast. There, I mean, there's so much to say, but I don't know why I was worried that we we're going to have a hard time talking about this. It's There's a lot that goes into it. I will be buying this come the uh, 50% off sale. Plugs, moving along to our musical plug who provide our opening and closing tracks that being the festive years who provide the opening of last stand and the closing of summer of 99 the will satiate all of your festive years needs yes our our friend and fellow podcaster hans roth geezer um, he did our logo 
He can do your logo. You can contact him on Twitter at Mildemonios, M-I-L-D-M-O-N-I-O-S. Email him at Mildemonios at Hotmail.com. You can uh, ask him about his zombie novel, uh, Requiem por Lurin, third on a best-selling series. Uh, you can just check Mildemonios.pe uh, for all his stuff, including his two podcasts, Nación Combi, which is in Spanish, about just Peruvian current affairs, and Living in Peru, about people that moved to Peru. The complete opposite of what I did with my life. All right. So before Julian and I get into our vanity plugs, our own personal recommendations, we do have some important business to get to. Peace. Yes. Uh, we have, I mean, if you're being online, you're part of our circle. Well, you know, the live stream for the Cure 2020 <laughs> is coming up. It's uh, the weekend of May 30th. May 30th is Saturday. So that means that it starts on the 28th. Mm-hmm. Um, 30th is when we will be on uh as you might remember we were part of the live stream 2019 edition we did basic instinct 2 a merry time was had by all except for maybe the two of us because we watched the movie before the show and it was it was grueling um i don't think that we're ready to reveal what movie we're going to be doing uh this year but i can tell you that we're going to be on like i said on may 30th at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, so clear your calendars and be ready for just another live episode of ours. Uh, we'll be there with Nick. I don't know if any other people are going to join, but you can be there, be on the chat, and donate. We'll figure out some cool prizes. But yeah, mark your calendar. Here's the official promo. Can you imagine a world immune to all forms of cancer? Ladies and gentlemen, the time has come for our fourth annual live stream for the cure. And this year, we need your help more than ever. Please join us May 27th through May 31st for 48 hours of live content from guests and podcasts around the world. We'll be aiming for our most ambitious goal to date as we try to raise $10,000 for the Cancer Research Institute. Please visit www.livestreamforthecure.com for more information on this year's event and how you can be a part of it. Together, we can make a difference. So that'll be the fourth Livestream for the Cure. We have another promo here. I I was telling Alex before we started recording that I fucked up and I forgot... Uh, to fulfill a promise I made, uh, it turns out that our friends from Ghosts of the Stratosphere just uh, had their second anniversary and they were uh, just collecting messages congratulating them. And I said, sure, I'll record one and send it to you guys. And then I completely forgot about it because we were recording. It wasn't Michael. It was whatever we did before Michael that it was ever after. I was probably Drew Barrymore out and I completely just forgot um, Doug Gray Scott was getting you. Yes, yeah, just the, all the Wolverine conundrums. Uh, so, to make up for that, uh, we wish them a second anniversary here on air. And we're going to play their promo, which we've never done. From the galactic depths of the comic book universe comes the ghosts of the stratosphere, ready to galvanize and energize your mind with the latest of comic book news and reviews. And why, why are you stopping me? Yes, that's much better. 
Hi, this is Andy Larson for Ghosts of the Stratosphere. Join me every week along with my co-hosts Rob Stewart and Chad Smith as well as a cavalcade of fantastic comic book guests as we dish out heaping helpings of the greatest and latest of comic book news and reviews. New shows posted every Tuesday with bonus shows every first Friday of the month. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher under Ghosts of the Stratosphere as well as on our website www.gotstratosphere.com Hope to see you soon, folks. All right, so that was the Ghost of Stratosphere. Congratulations, Andy, Rob, Chad, Stu, Nicole, and Amanda. Not all of them are in every episode, uh, but if you like comics like I do, like you do, Alex, you don't read them as much as I do now and as much as you used to, I guess, but... I try. I know. (laughs) But yeah, no, they're, they're a lot of fun. So what do you have to plug? I finally finished Crystal Lake Memories, the fucking seven-hour documentary on Friday the 13th. Like, I've been plugging away at that for easily six months. Seven hours as in it's broken up? Or is this just opening credits and then the end credits? It's a seven-hour documentary. Like, it's a two-disc Blu-ray set. Uh, and God bless him. Reed lent it to me, and he's watched it twice because he's he's watched it with the director commentary on it. Um, it's not from lack of will. God knows I love Friday the Thirteenth stuff. It's just a seven-hour documentary is an investment, so I kind of parceled it out uh, when I finally watched it. it. Essentially, you know, there's um, you could have watched Brutus the Warmest Color two and a half times, <laughs> or I could have watched uh, The Irishman once. Um, <laughs> Basically, because there's the 10 Jason movies, there's Freddy versus Jason, and then there's the remake. I called them Jason movies. Jesus. I'm annoying myself. Um, <laughs> Those MCU movies. The, yeah. And then there's like the retrospective. So basically what they do is they parcel it out. There's about 30 to 45 minutes dedicated to every movie. And it's like a mini documentary on every single movie. And then they just smash it together to make this one like overarching it's narrated by Corey Feldman, obviously, because he was uh, Tommy um, Jarvis in part four. And they get almost anyone back. The most notable um, exemptions or exceptions, I guess, was uh, Kevin Bacon. Oh, I was about to ask you. Crispin Glover. Uh, Glover doesn't surprise me. No, but they all talk about how eccentric he was, which is great. And then uh, um, Kelly Hugh, I believe her name is, she played the kind of Weapon X and X2, the one that gets filled up with the oh uh, the adamantium. Lady Deathstrike? Deathstrike? She's kind of Lady Deathstrike, but I believe yeah. Kelly Hugh is her name. She is in part eight. She's not in it. And there's one more that I, I can't remember, but um, there were a couple people you could tell kind of big time the project. But uh, like I said, Corey Feldman was there and they had... They brought like anyone they could get back, and it was it was refreshing to see how many of them realize it was just like this stupid job they took, and just but they're part of this kind of fun franchise, and how not seriously they take themselves, and then like the very small pocket of people in there that talk about the movies like it was like this was my character's motivation at the time, and it's like you were just there to get killed by Jason, but um, it's not something for everybody, but if you're a fan of the franchise in any aspect, and it's a pretty well-made documentary they did you know um 
for people that know the franchise, there was the first eight that were owned by Paramount and then owned by New Line. And then Jason Goes to Hell and Jason X that were Warner Brothers movies and I believe are now owned by New Line. Um, or it might be backwards, New Line and then Warner Brothers. Whatever the case, it would have taken a lot to get the rights for all the footage because they have footage from all the movies they use. There's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff, and there's also just really interesting things about, like, yeah, we filmed this, but they said no, so the footage got deleted. and um, Or, I guess, at that time, incinerated. It got chucked in the lake. Pretty much. You know this because I have the fucking theatrical poster in my living room. Part 8 is my favorite. And all the stories of that about, like, Yep, we're going to give you $120 million. And then, like, so they write this just insane elaborate script. And then right before they started filming, yeah, you know what we told you? We're giving you a third of that. So <laughs> Jason takes Manhattan became Jason being filmed in Toronto for 80% of the movie and then moved down. Jason takes a cruise? Yes. Yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> and they talk about, like, how illogical the movie is and all the gaps that uh, it provides. And then, to me, uh, finally making it to the end... And they talk about they're very forward with uh, the really negative reaction the remake got. And oh, all, that's refreshing. Yeah, and it, like all the actors that were in it that were interviewed for it were like, "Yeah, it kind of sucked for everyone to hate it, but like I thought it was cool that we were part of this." And um, Marcus Nispel, the guy who directed the Texas Chainsaw uh-huh. we did, he's in it too, and he's he's so just European as fuck. He's just like, "Yes, Jason comes out and kills. You know, that's what we do." <laughs> Um, <laughs> the highlight of it is you get through everything, these awesome stories, everything that like the franchise has been through. And then the, the credits, while the credits roll for it, and it's, it's a good amount. It's like 10 or 15 minutes. What they did was they had everyone they brought back for talking heads reenact their most famous line from the movie. That is awesome. So it's just like a 10 minute montage of all these people from all 12 movies, just reenacting things they said from it. So yeah, it, it's really cool. What it, do the Jasons do? I'm assuming that they bring the Jasons back. Yeah. Uh, oh dude, that's one of the best parts. The J like, okay. So for those of you who may not know, there's not really a Jason. It's a little kid in the first one, the second one, the third one, the fourth one and the fifth one were all individual actors, and then Kane Hodder played it for six, seven, eight, and nine, and ten. So Kane Hodder was the most synonymous with it. Um, so he has like the best stories, I guess. But the guys who like played it before him still just treat it like this bullshit role that they have that they don't care about. <laughs> like the guy in part two is some dude who has the most thickest New York accents. Like I was running through the damn woods and I couldn't see out of the hole in my mask. And it, and then the guy who is in part four was some like um, uh, he was in a movie with John Wayne. I can't remember Ted something or other. I can't remember his name, but. He had this awesome thing because they were talking about like Corey Feldman was like, yeah, he didn't really hang out with the cast. He wasn't really, you know, friendly with anybody. And then it cuts to him. He's like, my thought was Jason shouldn't be cutting up with the cast members in between takes. They should be scared of Jason. But then, yeah, so there's really not much to it. But Kane Hodder was the guy that um, the Jason mannerisms that most people, normal people like yourself are familiar with are the ones he kind of patented and invented and. So it's so funny to see him because he's just like a jack dude. He's a stuntman who um, it wasn't a Friday the 13th movie, but like was uh, there was a, a pyro accident in a movie he was on the set on. So like his neck is like all scar tissue from being burned oh. over. And so just seeing him like sitting there talking about the roles and then doing the movements and everything, you can just see it with like the mask on him. It's it's great. 
there's no conceivable way I can convince someone who does not care about that franchise to watch a fucking seven hour documentary on it. But if you have at any point in time really enjoyed or, you know, like myself, have been a connoisseur of the franchise, I can't recommend it enough. It's it's honest about what it is. Like I said, there's stuff in there I had no idea about, like Gina Gershon, like auditioned for part five. That That's probably the most entertaining part of the documentary because the guy that got to direct five, like they were paramount's whole thing was we hate that these movies make so much money because they're an embarrassment to our, like our industry. But the fact that they do make so much money means we have to keep making them. So it was basically cost cutting measures. So they just got a porn director for part five. (laughs) Uh, And it's funny to hear him talk about like, Oh yeah, I got cast because of how big my boobs are. And like thinking about that through the, the eyes of like 2020, it's a, it's a fascinating piece of business. And shockingly the person who comes across as the biggest cock is Corey Feldman. And I'm being completely facetious when I say shockingly, even though he's doing the narration, the narration's fine, but like, so he does the narration, but then he also supplies the talking heads for the two that he was in. And, uh, me and a friend of the podcast, Reed talked about, there's this one specific part where he's like, I wanted to be in part five, but then Steven Spielberg had to fuck it up and make the Goonies. And it's just like, you fucking asshole. Kind of on around the same level. Moving along to normal things. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so not on the same side. On the completely uh, opposite side of the spectrum when it comes to, I don't know, uh, critical acclaim. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I finally watched The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Uh, Listeners with a good memory might remember that last time Eddie was here, so it was for Camille, he kind of offhandedly mentioned that that was, in his mind, the best movie of 2019 on mm-hmm. his list. That was number one, and I watched it, and I don't think it's my number one because it doesn't feature Avengers, but it's definitely top 10 material. Uh, it's uh, Joe Talbot's first feature, and it's it's really good. I can't... I'm trying to find a way of explaining why it's good because part of it is so ethereal. It's just the way that it's made. Mm-hmm. Uh, only unlike Blue Velvet, in my argument against it or whatever, I don't think it sacrifices style for heart. Okay. And so there's a lot of the way it's shot is beautiful. And I'm not talking about like, oh, you're just watching paintings or whatever, but you know, the way that the score is done the, in the little surreal touches. Uh, but then the characters themselves are just so they're dealing with something that's so human. And uh, the basic story is this, this black guy is kind of obsessed with a, a house that his grandfather built, you know, obviously generations ago. And now it's owned by a white family. Uh, And every, I mean, several times a week he comes to the house while the family's gone and kind of like, fixes it up, paints stuff, and uh, something happens, and the family has to move out, and now the house is empty. And so he begins this sort of quest to own the house. And that's just kind of the starting point, and from then on it goes somewhere else. But it's not so much about the plot, although there is a story that this course of action ends at you know on something. But it's really about just how he sees this home it represents, because he lived in it when he was young before his Mm -hmm. family kind of lost the house and so it has a lot to do with the nostalgia and how to him this house represents the good times Mm. and 
just against any rational thought, he's just determined to... It's his goal. It's what keeps him uh, going, even though life is really hard. And he has a his best friend kind of like supports him. And uh, it's the relationship between them is it's sweet, but it's also complex. And and of course, they live in the hood, and and the contrast of them going to like the uh, gentrified neighborhoods of San Francisco and then going back to the hood. And it's just it's really good. It's uh, it's on Amazon Prime right now. I I can see people kind of like checking out because at the same time. It takes its time. Mm-hmm. It's, but it was never a problem for me because when there was, in quotation marks, nothing going on, there was still so much going on aesthetically. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way that the the director shoots San Francisco, the way that it uh, scores the the sequences, it's just so good. I I was really at this point. I mean, I'm still trying to close the book on 2019. I have about maybe 20 movies I haven't seen that I want to see. Uh, this was was one. Last Black Man in San Francisco was one of the most daunting ones because he had gotten so much critical acclaim. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to watch it when I was tired. I, did, I wanted to watch it in one sitting and all that. So it finally happened and I'm I'm just very happy. Definitely, definitely recommend it. Um, you know, you can you can stop halfway through the Friday the 13th documentary, take a break, <laughs> watch. Just set Last aside Black a whole Saturday. <laughs> yes. And then when it's done, you can come back to Corey Feldman being an asshole. And, yeah, excellent. Yeah, definitely worth watching. All right. So that was episode 104. That was Blue Velvet. What's next? Let's see. What's next? Uh, we have our bonus Street Fighter episode. Yeah. The guys from We Watch a Thing. Uh, that's on the 20th. And then April 1st. This is this is all you, Alex. Uh, no holds barred. I know it has Hulk Hogan. We're doing a commentary on it. Uh, I mean, if you want to watch that movie twice, because you usually have to prep yourself, right? You have to watch a movie. I mean, if we're doing a commentary, I'm watching it ahead of time. So I'm not completely lost. I'm not going to do that to you. We'll just do a traditional episode on it. (laughs) I mean, it's okay. Either way, I'll have a good time. Yes, Hulk Hogan and um, Tiny Lister, also known as uh, Zeus in that movie, also known as Debo in Friday, and also the... Uh, prisoner in the Dark Knight that does the right thing, taking the detonator. Now I know who you're talking about. Throwing it overboard. Yeah. It's something else. Okay. That's our WrestleMania Bonus episode, episode. Yeah. yes, sir. Bonus episode. Uh, and then we have uh, 105 is Hangover 3, and 106 Oof. is Boyhood. And then we're launched into the summer of Winona. I forgot we're doing Boyhood. Saturday. That's going to have to be a, a weekend movie. <laughs> yeah. got to have the whole day set aside. Hangover 3, where I lose all credibility. <laughs> it's It's been a while since we've referenced the Hangover franchise, but I, I think that there was one of the years where we just kept going back at it. Yeah. Uh, who, who knows? It, it may be shit at this point. I haven't watched it in several years. I just remember enjoying it when I saw it. It's either going to get Elizabeth Town or Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> one of the two. All right. Perfect. And we got a stacked lineup coming y'all's way. But for now, that's going to do it for the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. <laughs>